With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Americans of many different backgrounds say racial discrimination is a factor in the daily life of the country. That's according to a new survey out today from NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Researchers surveyed people from various socio-ethnic groups to see how and how much they've experienced discrimination. Karen Grigsby-Bates of NPR's Code Switch team reports on the study's findings from the group that reported facing the most discrimination, African Americans. Many black people will tell you that discrimination is so ever-present in their daily lives, it's kind of like background noise. It's there, but you don't always pay attention to it. So when I asked Beverly Reeves during a recent street festival in the heart of L.A.'s black community if she ever experiences discrimination... You're laughing. Why? Because it's kind of like, I felt like saying it's kind of a duh, you know. Kind of a duh. It's that obvious. Reeves says her most recent experience was last weekend when she'd booked manicure appointments for a group of friends, some black, some white, in her suburban neighborhood. The white salon owner, she says, looked right past Reeves to take care of her white guests, even though Reeves had arrived first and was hosting the event. I felt very hurt by that and very discriminated against, and I have not frequented that establishment since down the street, Robert Watkins says he's experienced lots of little cuts like the one Reeves just described and more serious ones as well. But it was with LAPD and uh, yeah, it was some uh, racist officers yeah, I dealt with. 
Harvard's Robert Blendon at the Chan School of Public Health says discrimination might not be a surprise to the groups that are experiencing it, but it might be news to people outside their group. And that's where this survey, which talked to more than 3,400 people of various backgrounds, might be helpful. So if somebody said, yes, I, I saw in the news that someone was just terribly treated by the police, but you know, that doesn't happen very frequently. We've now allowed people to say, well, there is an independent survey which represents people's experiences across the African-American community, and this is what they say actually happened. 92% of African-Americans surveyed said discrimination against Black Americans exists today. Half of those thought discrimination that is based on an individual's prejudice is a larger problem compared to the 25% that feel institutional discrimination is more problematic. Michael Jeffries, a historian at Wellesley College, says people might not recognize systemic discrimination when it's carried out by an individual. Robert Watkins only saw individual officers, not a biased system. If you don't have a sense of the ways police officers are afforded leeway by the legal system to use force and deadly force, then you might be more likely to chalk up instances of police brutality and harassment to individual bad actors rather than a system that has no mechanism for police accountability. In the survey, worry about policing was high on the list of black respondents' concerns. 61% believe that police officers in their neighborhoods are more likely to use unnecessary force on them than on a white person. And over 50% say they've experienced racial slurs or people who've made insensitive or derogatory comments about their race. Wellesley's Michael Jeffries isn't surprised. He believes the current political climate is a big reason. The president has inflamed racial tensions purposefully and repeatedly. A poll by the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University San Bernardino says hate crimes rose 20 percent during the 2016 election. The Southern Poverty Law Center's trackers say that trend continues in 2017. And it's not just black people who've experienced discrimination. In the coming weeks, we'll report on Latinos, Asians, Native Americans and whites, men and women, and LGBTQ adults. Everyone has a story, but maybe they don't know anyone else's story. Which, says Harvard's Bob Blendon, is the point of this survey. What's really unusual about this is we're giving people a chance to speak to other people who are not members of their own groups. With some hard numbers based on lived experience, Blendon hopes this might change some of the dialogue on race and discrimination over time. Karen Grigsby-Bates, NPR News. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Tuesday, October 24th, 2017. So I have been told... Speaking of crazy talk, the segment that you just heard that aired on NPR just a few hours ago, uh, 92% of African-Americans reported experiencing racism, thinking that racism is a problem for black people. Not just 92%. The malarkey uh, was immense in that little four minute snippet, four minutes and a little change. Uh, the portion when they get to the end and they said that the great thing about this project is that they will be sharing information on how everyone experiences racism. And then they ran all the way down uh, Latinos, Native Americans, Asians, white people, men, women, 
LGBT <laughs> went all the I thought they were going to at kangaroos, squirrels. Everyone is a victim of racism. Folly indeed. All the way through uh, that sound, cl- uh, sound clip. Uh, I just played that one because it did come on today to uh, comic relief is needed uh, in the system of racism, white supremacy. And we have a lot of serious things that I wanted to address today with our guest. Uh, he has been with us on the program uh, repeatedly over the years. Uh, I think I was chuckling this past weekend. When we were on the compensatory call in. Uh, I was remembering that uh, our guest, he was with us the night that President Donald Trump won the election. Uh, he was on the line. We had the live broadcast uh, to confirm Dr. Welsing's prediction and many of Cal's listeners who predicted as well that Trump was going to win to chuckle and gloat uh, and observe what was happening. Uh, And he chimed in on the line to give his uh, thoughts as history was being made. Uh, But in addition to that evening, uh, he has been on the program many, many times. Uh, He was actually with us December 25th uh, as well to go over the spectacle after everyone had had a month or two to process everything. Uh, He's an alumnus at North Carolina A&T. He is a behavioral neuroscientist, a neuropsychologist, uh, as well as a professor, author, and father. We've had him on the program before. Uh, We've talked about some of his written work, including The Awakening. OMG, the president is black. Not anymore. Uh, as well as Reality Check, a manual for the human octahedron and the mystery of melanin. As I said, always a hoot to have him on the program. Uh, Really enjoy hearing his perspective and looking forward to talking to him live this evening once again. Joining us again, Dr. Niana Rasayan. Dr. Rasayan, can you hear us okay? Are you with us, sir? Top of the day, brother. Can you hear me okay? Crystal clear, crystal clear. Thank you so much for sharing some of your Tuesday evening to speak with us. As I said, listeners, many of uh, the folks that listen to the program always appreciate you being so grateful with your time and look forward to hearing your perspective. Uh, Folks can visit the website. It's linked in the description for the program, eyesofma'at.com, eyesofma'at. Dot com. You can check out the website. You can see his blog, other things he's written online, and you can see uh, links for his books as well. Uh, anything you want to share with folks? This might be their first time hearing from you, Dr. Rasayan. Well, as always, I'm absolutely honored that you allowed me to um, come in and share my perspective on the unique quagmire that the planet is experiencing with regard to the placement of the 45th at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and the more recent carnage that took place in Vegas. And of course, the ongoing situation that directly relates to what's happening with our professional athletes on the gridiron. So I'm honored to be here. And I think that if people wanted to get a little synopsis of where I stand and what I'm about, they can very easily visit my website. If I sound a little winded, it's not because I'm aging, it's because I just scaled four flights of stairs, jumping out of a car, walking into my dwelling to park in front of my computer so I could be ready for you. So I just pulled out of my garage and zoomed up these steps. And that's why I sound the way I sound. But I'm looking forward to it. I heard everything that you used as a prelude to this evening's show. I don't know, was that Millie Fuller that you had starting off? And I, the people from NPR, I heard all of that. And all those things put things in context and perspective particularly in terms of the zeitgeist slash political climate that we're now facing. So again, 
you just pointed out that my website can very easily give you a synopsis of what I'm about. And I encourage people to take a peekaboo and see what my person stands for. And as always, I'm absolutely, totally honored that you allow me to be here. And let me give a shout out to um, Baba Dick Gregory, um, Zooming Roman ancestor, and to Sister Dr. Francis Quest Wilson, Zooming on the case for the race ancestor, because we certainly will need to evoke their spirits to give us some perspective in terms of what we will find ourselves unfolding this evening. Ashe, uh, unfortunately, Robert Guillaume, I guess, would be added to that list. He passed away today. I think folks recall he did uh, Benson, I think, is his most noted uh, television accomplishment. But he was a longtime uh, black actor. Uh, he passed away today as well. Uh, first thing. And by the way, given that you just mentioned him, are you aware that probably about maybe about six or eight years ago, he did a version of Scrooge? And it, but it never really made it to television. And I just mentioned that because um, he tried to do any number of things, even though he had roles that made some black people lean to the left, some black people lean to the right. But I just want to um, give a kudos to his spirit and may he have a safe crossing over to that ancestor's reception for him on the other side. Ashe. That said, uh, I wanted to start this is something on multiple levels uh we've talked about on the program before uh if folks again remember book club we're reading crazy talk stupid talk right now but the book that we started the year with was vincent woodard's the delectable negro home uh human consumption and homo eroticism in u.s slave culture that's the full title the short obviously is the delectable negro but the full title on that one is extremely important and we spent months reading that text uh you can keep in mind the case that happened in dietrich idaho last year that we talked to many of our guests with the black student uh on the football team and i believe he had some mental uh disabilities he was on the football team and his white teammates sodomized him racially terrorized him it was alleged that the coaching staff knew about the this and egg this behavior on uh, that that got reported in the middle of last year. Ultimately, they gave very light punishments uh, to the white suspected racist students who were involved uh, in that case. The parents filed a lawsuit. Just kind of keep all of that in background for this story. I'm not concerned right now about racist enforcement officers. If we're talking about the system of white supremacy right now, I'm focused on white child, uh, white children, racist child. I think is the term I use in this program a lot. Dr. Rasayan is in the DMV area, uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. There was a report that came, and Dr. Rasayan is a black father. There was a report that came out this weekend, got a lot of attention. Uh, middle school students pretend to rape black classmates on Snapchat. I just want to read a little bit of the report in case folks missed this and then get your thoughts, Dr. Rasayan, because I think this uh, is extremely important and should not be minimized. Uh, the report reads, uh, the the Snapchat had just about every offensive topic the middle school students could cram into a video clip. Race-based simulated sexual assaults, profanity-laced slurs, and repulsive language that shocked whoever the intended audience was, and eventually many more people. In a flash, the short pump middle school football team's sexual and racist video clip has rocketed nationwide the latest reminder that internet posts can have enduring, devastating effects in the real world. That, I thought, was <laughs> ironic. The name of this school apparently is Short Pump Middle School. Continuing, in this case, those consequences were swift. According to the Associated Press, 
the rest of the team's season has been canceled. Police are investigating the students seen in the video and the whole team, now the face of a viral video, has to undergo the dreaded sensitivity training. The students recorded the video sometime last week and someone shared it on Snapchat. It ultimately got out and spread in this Richmond suburb of nearly 25,000. The video is captioned, what really goes on in the football locker room. In the clip, some of the team's white football players simulate sex acts on the black members, bending them over benches or gyrating against them on the floor. According to Richmond CBS affiliate WTVR, another caption says, I generally don't like to uh, sanitize what they said, and they got a direct quote, so I'm going to read what they said. Uh, We're going to fuck the black out of these black children from Uganda. End quote. An edited version of the video and a full account of the outrage it was sparking was broadcast on local TV news station. Parents were angered, police were called, and the school board decided it had to act. In a message on the community posted Friday on Facebook, the Henrico County School Board said it was deeply concerned by the video. Adamantly, behavior of this type will not be tolerated in our schools. The letter said we have extremely high expectations and students who fail to meet the code of student conduct standards will be addressed promptly and appropriately. The letter also outlined the punishment those implicated would face. Uh, The remaining games would be forfeited, but practices would continue with a big change. A mandatory component of practices will be discussions that focus on reporting responsibilities, accountability, ethics, sexual harassment, and racial tolerance. Goes on, there's a bit more, but I will Stop there. I thought this was really important. I guess the first thing I would start with, uh, Dr. Rasayan, what to you does this say about white children in the system of racism, white supremacy? I think if, in fact, was that Nilly Fuller that you had at the opening of, yes, the, um, of the program this evening? And he was talking about how black people are devalued. And he went on to a whole list of things, how people get programmed. Correct. And, you know, the, the buzzword now in genetics and um, neuroscience and psychology is called epigenetics. So there is a degree of programming that takes place among these children that's a carryover from what happens in their households to some degree, even though a lot of their parents are in great denial. And it's reinforced by what people find in cyberspace on the internet, and particularly the language that they use in terms of what they wanted to do. But process, you remember, we did a show some time ago, and I think you may a reference to um, nuts to butts, the way they had the guys incarcerated at a major penal institution um, somewhere on um, uh, Midwest United States, like maybe near Chicago or whatever. You remember that show? Absolutely. Great We're memory. We're talking about nuts to butts. So the point being, in terms of these people being effed, the bottom line is I personally think to a great degree, that's how a lot of them feel. A lot of them feel, even though many of them are going to go in denial about it. But the language, and I'll just have to use the language to repeat it in the context because you did a direct quote. That message translates into people, they want to, you know what the word fuck means. It's like when you get fucked, that means you get screwed over. Nothing goes your way. It also means that you get demoralized. It also means that you have no way to come back. So unfortunately, I think that mindset is being amplified in society today because of the current position taken by the 45th. And it's almost like someone has opened the door. You remember that song that came out many, many years ago called who let the dogs out. Well, now that you have the 45th residing at 
1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, he's opened up the door for all of the rednecks, all of the backwoods, all of the people that are basically a misrepresentation of the human race to come out the woodwork and do and say all the things that they've been wanting to say for a very long time. If anyone is ignorant about racism, white supremacy, it is certainly not white people. And I would even say certainly not white people. Uh, just and your thought, I'm certain Dr. Welsing, you invoked her name and spirit to start the program. Uh, I know she had has written, spoken regularly for you. You're breaking up. Hello. Oh, oh, can you hear me? Am I coming in? I'm still breaking Hello? up. Am I breaking up or can you hear me? Hello. Oh, am I breaking up or are you not hearing me still? Uh oh, are you not? Am I not coming through? Or are you not hearing me? Oh, it looks like my volume is showing up. It looks like I am being heard. Uh, Dr. Rossayon, we're not hearing you. It's your volume I'm not hearing. Uh, let's see, Dr. Rossayon, are you still with us? Let me see. Let me, I'm just going to sound check myself. Uh, Emmy, I'm just going to sound check myself. Can you hear me? Just making sure it's Dr. Rossayon, not me. Can you hear me or am I breaking up? I hear you just fine. Okay. Much obliged. Um, I will give Dr. Rossian a second. It looks like he might have had to disconnect. So I'll give him a second to see if he uh, rings us back. Let's see. Made me lose my place. I was trying to, I'm just, so I don't forget Dr. Uh, Welsing's point uh, about the F word. That was what I was going to ask Dr. Rossian. So I don't forget when he rings us back. Uh, folks would like to dial in while we're getting Dr. Rasan back with us. The number is 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate i would certainly if we have uh, other parents out there i would use that report uh to talk to your children about racism white supremacy and to maybe reconsider uh, having your child be involved with those type of organized athletics. Uh, it's a lot of that sort of thing in terms of the rampant abuse and misconduct, all of that. Lots of that. I don't think that's an isolated case at all. Okay. Let's see if we have uh, Dr. Rossian with us. If I am just missing. Oh, there we go. Uh, Dr. Rossian, are you with us, sir? You got me. You know, we got cut off. You know that, right? Yes, sir. I, I saw you. As, as soon as you were evoking the spirit of Dr. Welsing, you were making a statement and we got cut off, cut off. So I called you on my other um, line because it cut off and it wouldn't let me get back through. Wow. So I um, pulled up my other phone to call you from, you know. Um, anyway, I, I, I may have missed some of the things that you were saying because I hadn't activated my computer. But the, the last probably 90 seconds of what you were saying, I, I probably missed. Okay. But we had just evoked the spirit of um, Dr. Wilson. I, I think I just heard you say something like, something like not isolated, but I, I missed the last, what, you know, I was bringing up Dr. Welsing's name that I wanted to ask you with regards to the high or middle school, not high school, middle school situation. And for folks, middle school would generally be 
ages like 11 to 13, if we want to be precise about the age range of the uh, young terrorists, I think that would be an appropriate name for what was described, if that is accurate. Uh, but I was going to ask Dr. Welsing, she talks extensively. She talked and wrote about uh, the term uh, motherfucker and how that is applied to racism, white supremacy and their conduct towards black people. Uh, does that seem to also be present in what they were saying? We're going to fuck the black out of you. Um, as they're going to F the black out of them, that's, that's so much of an oxymoron because the, the, the language is, is, is intended to be completely abusive and also suggest that in, in other words, we're going to put something inside of you as we F over you, that's going to make you less black. And the irony of them doing that is why would someone want to engage in something that they have stereotyped to be so evil? Because it, in my opinion, it's almost like as I screw this out of you, then where does it go? And I'm about to try and relate that to what you said about the MF, all right? Because uh, that's a very, very vile word. That word is incredibly vile. So I think that particular behavior is indicative of the pathology that represents that group. And I don't want to use a whole bunch of flowery, cute words when I say the pathology that represents that group. Keep in mind, you know, um, whatever falls from the tree has to have some of the attributes that were in the roots or the trunk of the tree and however the tree was groomed and whatever you fed the tree. So these kids, even though they're probably default and say it comes from the internet and cyberspace, I will submit to you that that kind of pathology is an expression of pathology that they have allowed to bloom within themselves that probably has been carried around for a long time in their parents. Because parents are very quick to say, well, I didn't raise my child that way. I didn't raise my child to do this. But I'm sure you've seen in a number of environments when parents don't hold their kids responsible and accountable for some of the vile things they do, some jurisdictions will go out and actually arrest the parents and give them something like 30 days in jail because they don't have any control over their children. So this kind of behavior in terms of them effing the black out of them, I think that language alone is so oxymoronic that it bespeaks to pathology. It's like, how are you going to screw the black? Are you going to F the black out of them? And you are actually white. Are you following my logic? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, it's pathological. It's pure pathology. It's, I mean, it's, it's indicative of the sickness. You know, you're going to engage me in something. And what you're going to engage me into, ironically, it's something that you don't have the genetic capacity to change and alter in any way. And my blackness is not going to jump off of me and jump on you as if it's something that's evil. And then you plug into it at a deeper level. How is it that you are going to take off or out of me that which you so genetically thrive for every day when you go to um, spring break and when you go to beaches and when you go out into the sun and when you go to tanning salons and when you tattoo your body because you don't have colors, even though a lot of black people are doing it now, but you cover your body in so many tattoos because you don't have any color. So all of that, in my view, bespeaks the pathology that is running through these particular, I don't want to say youngsters, these, um, this hybridized versions of humans that is now being signed off on by society saying it's okay to F over black people. It's okay to demean black people, even though you and I know it's been okay all along. 
But now it's like broadcast news alert. By the way, the flag is now waved. The banner is now on display. You can F over black people today without any form of impunity. Are you following my logic? Absolutely. What would you recommend for black parents? Again, you are a black parent. What would you recommend for black parents who have their children in public schools or maybe even in these type of organized athletics? What sort of suggestions would you give them knowing that this sort of thing is not an isolated incident? I would demand of these folk, and my kids have graduated from school. Are you there? Oh, yes, sir. Hello? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I would, I would, I would demand, you know how they used to have those old things called PTA meetings? Mm -hmm. I would get a group of parents to convene, and I would actually choose the parents that are more comfortable being verbal, meaning that they're more articulate. I would have what you might call, like, not a brain trust, but I would get together a group of parents that has sentiments that I wouldn't say compliment mine, but all parents love their children. They don't want them screwed over, right? And then I would get representatives from that group of parents. And I wouldn't petition. I would demand to have a meeting with whoever that school board is or whoever those people are that are on the school board. And I would demand. I would have it verbally conveyed. And I would have a document to, to substantiate and expand on those verbal commands, literally, that this is what we want. This is when we want it, and this is when we want to see some benchmarks of results to suggest that you've actually acted on it. We don't need to do a study. We don't need to get a group of people to come out from God knows where to look at this situation and provide counseling. I would demand that you put people in place to start executing some change, and I would be looking for my benchmarks to say that those changes are actually taking place. Are you following me? Yes, sir. And those changes could be anything from I would have someone assigned as not what you might call a sleeper, but I would have what I would call um, um, covert observers to monitor these people that are supposed to be training our children, that are supposed to be watching our children. I would have these covert monitors to be available in these schools. It's sort of like that movie that was released based upon a television series called 21 Jump Street. I would have people assigned to police and hold these people accountable. And as soon as we found anybody accountable from the administrators on down, we would demand in writing that the school board let those people go, meaning they cannot teach in this state anywhere at all under no circumstances. And I would also demand, just like they put in place, that they have these things for people that are sex abusers, wherever they go to live, they would have to register that they have a history of doing that. I would demand that. Mm context of white supremacy just want to i'm committing the same error although i think often whites do it as an act of racism i'm just a victim of white supremacy i'm trying to be more careful with my words there are no allegations here that word shouldn't be used and there should be no soft peddling or euphemisms they have video <laughs> there's nothing to deny this was done this happened uh so everything should be very forceful in the way that this is talked about and generally white crimes in general get uh, very soft treatment. Uh, I think they even use the term cuts and slights as opposed to acts of terrorism and violence uh, when talking about white crimes. Uh, we had lots of things to cover, so I'm trying to move forward here. Uh, but let me pause. Can I, may I revisit that for a second? Absolutely. What you just said. Absolutely. It's like, you remember when they used to describe um, black quarterbacks or black running backs as just having raw brute strength and mm. almost like he's an animal out there. He's genetically built that way. And that's why I got Jimmy the Greek released many, many, many years ago, a decade or so ago from the comments that he made. And they use what you just finished suggesting the polite, kind, flowery language when they talk about what these people are doing. 
And not only that, even when you show them the video, one of the first things that they say about the video is, we need to study this video, we need to look at it frame by frame, and see if we can't assess what the antecedent factors were that led to the video. Are you following me? All those things are indicative of pathology. See, the, the person that is disturbed, clearly disturbed, with pathology, they will try and rationalize that pathology. It's just like that guy, um, what's this guy's name that was just made available like 30 million plus for a suit um, um, for the things that he had allegedly or he's done to women. And he, I think he, yeah, O'Reilly. And it's like, he says he's the real victim. And like Weinstein says that these women all consented. The point being, whenever they do whatever they do, and I'm saying they, I'm talking about Caucasian men that are operating under the system of with the shield of the system of white supremacy. They come up with all this polished, polite, polysyllabic, euphemistic language, and it all, quite frankly, invariably, would go to the cute jargon of, well, you know, this was a, a well-to-do white person that did that. I don't know what came over this person that's out of his or her character. That's so atypical for them. Everything I've known about this person, they've always been a good citizen and a whole nine yards. Conversely, if it was a Latino or a black person, they would look when you were in the third grade and poured some milk on the teacher's head in the classroom and say he's always had a history of being very difficult to manage. Are you following my logic? Absolutely. So they just dig up stuff and they will misrepresent it as pathology. And if that same white kid had poured like pig blood and put pig, you know, like um, entrails on someone in the class, they would say, well, it was just a prank that kids engaged in in school and it wasn't out of the ordinary. What about when he set the teacher's desk on fire? Well, you know, these kids, they get a little animated around Halloween time. and You see the language changes, but if it was somebody black, he was violent. He was an arsonist. He also had it built into him. His father did this and his father did that. And that's the kind of crap that we need to start demanding accountability for. Because when they use that kind of language, it's like Millie Fuller was suggesting. Not only does it marginalize you, it amplifies you as being a criminal versus someone that's a victim of a system that has done, God knows, things that I'm not even able to come up with adjectives to describe that's been done to black people and your parents context of white supremacy absolutely our guest dr niana rasayan great espn documentary on jimmy the greek speaking of racism uh one of the uh, other topics that i forwarded you that i also wanted to make sure uh that we covered and speaking of skillful use of language to criminalize black people great recent illustration of that the FBI document talking about black identity extremists. Uh, the report, it's not very long, about 12 pages. You can download it and read what they say. But the executive summary reads, the FBI assesses it is very likely black identity extremists perceptions of police brutality against African-Americans spurred an increase in premeditated retaliatory lethal violence against law enforcement and will very likely serve as justification for such violence. Even uh, that term, just highlight that very likely. I'll come back to that later. Uh, the FBI assesses it is very likely this increase began following the August 9th, 2014 shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and the subsequent grand jury November 2014 declination to indict the police officers involved. The FBI assesses it is very likely 
Incidents of alleged police abuse against African-Americans since then have continued to feed the resurgence in ideologically motivated violent criminal activity within the BIE movement. The FBI assesses it is very likely some BIEs are influenced by a mix of anti-authoritarian, Moorish sovereign citizen ideology and BIE ideology. The FBI has high confidence in these assessments based based on a history of violent incidents attributed to individuals who acted on behalf of their ideological beliefs documented in FBI investigations and other law enforcement and open source reporting. The FBI makes this judgment with the key assumption the recent incidents are ideologically motivated. Uh, I'm sure you have heard about this report. What are your thoughts, implications for black people? You do remember, I think one of the people that basically said that was a bunch of bull was Khan or Janaya Kane. Say the name. Are you name. familiar with Jan- the, uh, It broke up. J-A-N-A-Y-A. Excuse me? It broke up both times when you were saying the name. Okay. J-A-N-A-Y-A. K-H-A-N. Oh. Janaya okay. Khan. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, well, you take a peek in Google, you're fine, right? Mm. Let me share with you what I think. This ain't nothing but straight up throwback, throwback protocol from the 60s and the 70s from COINTELPRO. You know, like the FBI did all to criminalize anybody that was black that took a position that was for the benefit of black people. If you stood up for anything that benefited black people as a group, then you became a militant. And if you became identified as a militant, that allowed the U.S. government to basically call out their their dogs in black suits and black ties and and occasional dark sunglasses and very comfortable walking shoes to do their thing with COINTELPRO. They basically criminalized anybody that stood for anything that was going to be beneficial to elevate the consciousness of black people, to give black people a sense of harambe, standing together, doing things for the community. They criminalized them. And not only did they criminalize them, they would make up crap about these individuals to reinforce typecasting them as a criminal. Use this as a frame of reference. In the 70s and the 80s, prior to crack, when black folk had problems with heroin in the city, it was criminal behavior. It was behavior peculiar to junkies, people that could not be trusted. As soon as this crap bled out into the suburbs and began to impact vanilla brothers and sisters, all of a sudden it became a medical condition that was brought on by overuse of narcotic substances or these kinds of drugs to alleviate the kinds of pains that white folk were going through. So the bottom line is they changed the language and they put the language in a context to imply that whatever black folk do for black people, you're not criminal behavior. And if you go and read in detail, this damn BIE or this black identity extremist crap, anytime black folks stand for anything to benefit black folk, vanilla brothers and sisters, and I call them vanilla brothers and sisters because they're just hybridized versions. And I won't go into detail about that now, but I'll expand on somebody asks. The bottom line is, when we stand up for ourselves, Samuel Cartwright comes to mind. There was a term that I mentioned before, and a lot of black psychologists are familiar with it now, and a few white psychiatrists. The term is called drapetomania. 
And it meant that when black people began to realize that I don't want to be your damn slave, I don't want to work for you for nothing, I don't want to go out here and say, yes, a master, no master, and do every damn thing you say because you own me, master, and I'm going to run away. White folks said that was a mental health condition they called drapetomania. And drapetomania carried the connotation of fleeing from home madness, which meant that you're running away from your home, there's something wrong with your brain because you don't want to be a slave. And in order to cure you, of that disease condition that you have called drapetomania. We're going to beat the hell out of you, flog you till you lose consciousness in front of your children, in front of your wife, in front of the people that are dear to you, to the degree that you're going to say that you've done something wrong. All those things are indicative of pathology. All those things represent the system of white supremacy and how the system goes on board to say, if you're black and you stand up for yourself, there's something wrong with you. If you are not a submissive black person or a black person that's willing to be assimilated into the society and colonized in the society, something is wrong with you. I think it's bullshit. Mr. Cartwright is in uh, medical apartheid, Harriet Washington, one of our favorite texts on the program. I pointed out the use of the term very likely in that report uh, where they kept saying that they think it's very likely that the BIEs uh, are going to do something, some form of uh, retaliatory lethal violence against enforcement officials. And they keep very likely, very likely keep saying it over and over. If you read the, which again, it's not that big. You get to like page eight of the report. They explain how they came up with these terms very likely and what that even means. So it reads phrases such as the FBI judges and the FBI assesses and terms such as likely and probably convey analytical judgments and assessments. The chart approximates how expressions of likelihood and probability correlate with percentages of chance. The FBI only uses likelihood expressions Furthermore, the FBI does not derive judgments via statistical analysis and will not use expressions of probability to convey uncertainty in external FBI intelligence products. And so then they go down and give you the breakdown for what these terms mean. So almost no chance. That means the probability is remote and they give you a percentage of one to five percent. Now, they said it's very likely that the BIEs are going to carry out some form of uh, retaliatory violence. Very likely means 80 to 95 percent certain that this is going to happen. What does this statistical breakdown, what does this mean to you, Dr. Rasayan? That means that they're trying to create a mindset among other individuals that may be, quote unquote, scholars, that what they're saying isn't really anecdotal. It's not opinion. It's based upon statistical probability. And the statistical probability that they're referring to is they're talking about the correlations being like very likely, very high probability. But they aren't using what they do in classic statistical research at the 0.05 level of significance, which means that, you know, like 95% of the time out of 100, this is going to happen. But they've already sort of candidly said to you that 80 to 90% of the time, this is going to occur. So what that does is it primes the people in various police jurisdictions, it primes them to say, anytime you find articulate, outspoken black people that you typecast under the rubric of extremists, they are basically people that you should target and 
pay close attention to. It also says that in the event that any of those individuals are identified as having been remotely affiliated with something, the FBI has already primed the researchers and other scholars to plug into that research to say that the probability of this individual doing something is high. Therefore, based upon suspicion, information, and belief, we can actually detain these people at will if we deem it necessary to do so because they may be the kinds of people that are likely to ensue or start a riot by creating so much unrest on the people. I would submit to you that that's exactly as was going on with the current 45th on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue because the kind of language that this person uses literally translates into very likely the person to stir up chaos in any number of environments so people will do all the things that he knows he's not going to do. It's like old school Chicago union busters. You know, you send some people up in cars with bats few people on the corner shoot a few gun rounds, release a few rounds into the sky. So people panic, and then they run, and then they run into the direction where the people have the bats. And the people that have the bats say, we thought they were coming to attack us. So they beat the hell out of them. So all those things are basically you priming. And you pump the people up emotionally, and you pump up the researchers to basically say they're willing to look at it. And when they say they're willing to look at it, guess who's going to fund their research? The system of racism and white supremacy will fund their research. And as they fund their research, they might put in like one or two black people to be part of the research as graduate assistants or to oversee it. And then they'll go out and do a basic pseudo study saying that these individuals took this survey on this Likert scale and most of them scored greater than seven on the Likert scale, which meant that they had so much pent up anger that if given an opportunity, they're likely to do A and B in the community to wreak harm on the community they think has punished them over and over again. So once they publish that study in a so-called peer reviewed journal, which 80 plus percent of them are racist hell and designed to do things to please mainstream America, i.e. white America, a white traditionalist, they will wind up saying to you, but our numbers don't lie. And the numbers translate into this and the numbers translate into that. You just cited something from NPR that talked about 92% of these people of color are black people. They feel like racism is basically alive and well and doing blah, blah, blah to us. So the bottom line is this, brother. These people, they aren't that good at it. They just saturate you with so much nonsense. And because you get saturated with so much nonsense, you interpret that saturation and become part of the group think. And the group think says, I saw it on MSNBC News. I saw it on CNN. I saw it on ABC, NBC, CBS. So it must be true. Are you following? Then they get these people that they prop up that don't know a damn thing about human behavior. They could be a minister from this church, a minister from that church, or somebody that's just well-known. And I'm not saying anything negative about Brother Steve Harvey, okay, because I ain't got no respect for the brother. But they might take someone like him and say, well, these people got these studies in here. And so what you got to say about these studies? These studies did this and these studies did that. I would say, what did your biostatisticians say about that data? What did they say about how that data was collected? Did they say that that data is a representative sample of people that have this mindset or that mindset? How much education do those people have that you are identifying as extremists? I nip all that crap in the bud with their own protocol that they put in place to undermine the integrity of the individuals that they're trying so hard to malign. Wow. What I guess you already referenced Cointel Pro from the 1960s and 70s. We've certainly talked about that a lot. Uh, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, his book, Racial Matters, the FBI's Secret File on Black America from 1960 to 1972, certainly comes to mind. Uh, I wanted to ask, they did not have Twitter, Facebook, 
social media in the 1960s and 70s. To have the Pro operation continuing now where you have social media and people going online saying, you know, right on Micah Johnson, that's my guy. Maybe they're not doing anything. Maybe that was just their, you know, Twitter post for the day. When you have this sort of environment, how do you think that will impact knowing that enforcement agencies are watching what's being posted on social media? And that might be a part of what they're collecting and surveilling as well. Well, see, brother, it's a term they use when they talk about research in oncology or cancer research. And it's a term they call metastasizing. Metastasizing would be synonymous with what people say cyberspace when they say things have gone viral. You know, it goes viral. And, you know, you think about something going viral, it's running all over the damn place. And when something metastasizes, it has gone all over the place to the degree that we, we can no longer control it. So in my opinion, I think that these people will use the tools of technology today to drop these viruses wherever they want to put these viruses. And I think that they will do this to the degree that they can even identify certain groups of people to say, I want you to visit this site and say you like it or you saw it in the whole nine yards. And when they get a certain number, they can say it goes viral. And then once that has happened, they'll basically say, look at the number of hits that you got here that are supporting this. And then people will read it. And when they read it, they will believe it. And as they read it and believe it, people have a tendency to act on what they believe. Even they don't know a damn thing about what the hell is really going on. H.G. Wells proved that when he did that classic War of the Worlds on the radio. He did it on the radio. People heard it. They were saying, like, damn, the Martians have attacked us. They're doing all kinds of stuff. So they had to come back and tell people this is a radio broadcast. Today in cyberspace, people see things on cyberspace. You see it going viral with a whole bunch of hits. You go, damn, damn, damn. It must be true. Damn. And your current 45th, he does the exact opposite of things that represent the truth by basically saying that's fake news. And then somebody will retweet his tweet. And they say it's fake news, and a group of people jump on board and say it must not be true. It's fake news. And then they create what? Disbelief. People don't know what to believe. And when people don't know what to believe, guess what people do? People either don't take action or people react to other folks' actions. And reaction means you have chaos. And when you have chaos, you can set the stage to do any number of things. You can call out the National Guard. You can implement martial law. And I guarantee you, and I shouldn't say the word guarantee, the probability is very high that if we as a collective group of people don't get a handle on the madness that's going on, there are going to be a whole range of phenomena that will present themselves in different arenas, in different environments, so much so that we'll sit back and say, my God, everything that's going on in the world right now is very chaotic. And none of us will understand our basic biology one-on-one. What was the catalyst? What created this chaos? What fueled chaos? Because people are afraid to point their finger at the source that's fueling the chaos. Are you following my logic? And so when you jump into cyberspace, cyberspace is like groupthink. Cyberspace is a place where you can have all kinds of crackpots doing all kinds of things because they have a degree of anonymity, because they can hide behind the little pseudonyms or the little um, symbols that they use for who they are, and you don't have access to identify who they are unless you tap into their IP address. And most of us don't have the resources or facility to tap into a variety of people's IP addresses. But I guarantee you, 
the people that they plug into Cisco and the people that work out of the feds and the people that work out of the NSA and Homeland Security, they can get their little people together, their hackers together, and they can find your IP address and pull up to your doorstep and say, this crap came from this computer. So they can hide. Hmm. Well, I, I guess to be specific with now you have lots of folks, you have, let's say, like a lot of black people uh, who would use social media, who would go on and maybe they would cheer uh, somebody like Gavin Long. He was the guy that was the suspected shooter in Louisiana uh, or Micah Johnson, who I mentioned, he was the suspected shooter in Dallas. Maybe they go online and they post something about that or maybe they go online and they're just posting about whatever's happening. They post about Black Lives Matter or they post about Khalif Browder or Sandra Bland. Uh, how would these t- black people that are just posting about this sort of thing on social media, how do you think this BIE report, how do you think that might impact just regular black people that are using social media? Brother, they're going to collect the data. And that's what I meant when I was talking about the IP address. Mm. Homeland Security, NSA, CIA, the, the feds, they got access to collect the data. And collect the data, and it ain't even that difficult to do because a lot of people, when they go on social media, they have a handle or a nickname or a pseudonym or an avatar that they use when they go online, right? And I haven't got to tell you now, a lot of people that will hire a person or consider a person for a particular job of, or employment, they'll look at your Facebook page, all right, or whatever you might do on Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and they'll look at the kinds of things you've been tweeting, the kinds of things you've been posting, and who are the people that you communicate with in your network. And that will give them a way to monitor what you do if you are so open to share your opinions, opinions candidly. As a matter of fact, um, I think um, Facebook actually hired a whole team of people to monitor things that will go online when they think things, are, you know, you might say might not be in the best interest of what's happening in, in the U.S. and also people that might be in the process of doing harm to someone. Because, you know, people do stupid crap. You know, they do something and they post it on Facebook. And Facebook has been trying to figure out how to be on top of these things before their posts. What I do think it will do to um, people of color or black people or conscious people, it will probably to agree, to a degree, those that think that they're reasonably intelligent, it will make them probably a little inhibited about saying exactly what they want to say in that media. It will also make those individuals that are a little less restrained, just, you might just say, write what they want to write from the cuff. They want sense of what they're saying. But guess what? Those people may not know a year from now or six months from the time they made the post, they may find themselves at a job interview or find themselves in a work environment. And someone will say, well, hey, man, you posted this and that on Facebook. And before you know it, they'll say, you're not the kind of person that we want in our work environment. So it's all designed to control you. The illusion of all this freedom translates into you have freedom of speech as much as you think you have freedom of speech. But if you say the wrong damn thing, your behind is going to have some people checking you out. And they aren't going to check you out overtly until they can justify that what you're saying they perceive as a threat. And the classic generic threat, any, the generic threat is anytime you say anything that the U.S. government views as a threat to national security, they can just, they ain't got to knock on your door. They can come knock your door down. Am I responding to what you asked me? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I was going to nab a few callers, but I just wanted to get in based on what you just said as well, that, you know, based on something that you write, wrote on uh, Twitter or whatever it is, uh, a few years down the line and you're trying to get a job or whatever. And it's like, oh, man, I don't know if we if you're going to fit into our atmosphere. Uh, I would especially encourage uh, black parents or if you're black, older folks and you have access to black children that you care about. You have an opportunity to speak with them. Uh, I would maybe speak with them a bit more about social media. If you have some younger black people and they just go on and write, they could be upset, you know, latest police shooting or anything. And they just go on and they're writing something. They could be upset about that and write something and they could end up getting in trouble uh, or even if it doesn't get in trouble. But they certainly have had a lot of instances, even before this BIE report, where they were just tracking people that were using the hashtag Black Lives Matter or the hashtag Tamir yeah. Rice. Or, go ahead. Don't you remember when we had, we had this protocol in D.C.? We had, um, damn, I just forgot the codes. We had like code orange, code yellow, and you know, these right, codes right. for different levels of alert. Right. So when these people are talking about very likely and likely, that basically puts people in a category. I'm probably one of those individuals that folk are like, wow, you say some things that are inflammatory. I already told you. Remember that brother, um, Jonathan Mezzo? Um, he, I forgot the name of the book, but his name just popped in my head. It was the book about... Protest um, Psychosis? Protest Psychosis. And he was over at Vanderbilt, right? Um, he wrote the book. Now, if somebody black had written that book, laid it out and said all those things, they would be viewed as someone that's really trying to create some chaos. So... The book that's been written by a group of psychologists and psychiatrists, I think they have dropped the book now to tell you there's something wrong with the 45th. And the only way they've been able to come to the table and tell you there's something wrong with the 45th is to get a whole team of them together to say something is wrong with the 45th. Because if you say something is wrong with the 45th all by yourself, you can find you're behind getting into a whole bunch of damn trouble. But if you can get a team of people to go along with what you're saying, that team of people back to group think, who can you hold the blame or accountable? And those individuals that dropped that book was 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts. And they wrote a book called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. You follow me? So they wrote a book. And the book is talking to you about the pathology that they perceive at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and how we're all in harm's way. And they used to not be allowed to talk about these kinds of things because they felt that they had to chill out because the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, has a, a term or a guideline called Goldwater Rule, all right? And I'm not going to get into the history of it, but the bottom line was you can't talk about our incredibly well-known professional political figures because you won't get a grant like next year, you won't get this, you won't get that, or you're going to a lot of trouble. But when you can get 27 psychiatrists and mental health people to say that dangerous case, they don't say the 45th, I just don't evoke his name a lot, right? But they say the dangerous case of DT, i.e. His, his, um, his name, that's telling you we need to handle this man. But they need to handle him because there are so many things in place that would not allow people to say anything about the 45th. Remember, he thinks he's Machiavelli somebody. He wants to tell journalists what they can say and what they cannot say. He wants to take those rules from them. You feel me? And the way that he was recently identified as being consistent with his character, 
I'm about to digress and talk to you about the pathology that I think is now looming over America. And it's like Dr. Wilson said, meet your next president. Because she knew when she said that this man is willing to talk about racism, talk about how white folk really feel, and whether you know it or not, they are going to vote him in. And it doesn't matter whether or not he got like 5 or 2.5% help from major states from Putin, but it does point out the fact that white women, Caucasian women, are the women that skewed the vote so dramatically that Putin could give him a nudge and get him in the White House. So what does that say about how white women really feel about women, number one? And what does that say about how white women really felt about having the 44th in the White House with a woman that was obviously African and black? America is so, how should I say, caught up on her carousel of pathology that she will amplify her pathology just to try to say to black people, we don't like the fact that you all seem to have some power. We can't stand the fact that not only do you seem to have some power, you're running around like you have power. Just take Cam Newton's comment about, he chuckled when he said that, wow, a female is talking about routes, you know? And it wasn't nothing really sexist behind that, but America put that spin on it from, I think it was the Charlotte Observer, that how dare Cam Newton say, oh, well, um, a female is talking about routes. He didn't say, uh, that's interesting, a white woman is talking about routes. He said a female is talking about routes. So they spin that in the media to imply that he's not saying this woman is a journalist that's able to talk about what men do on the football field, but he was maligning women. He ain't no damn psychologist. He's a professional quarterback. He ain't no damn sociologist. He's not an anthropologist. He's just a young brother. I think Cam is probably younger than 26. He might be younger than 25. And he's just talking from the cuff with a smile like, wow, female talking about routes. What do they do to that? They try to malign the hell out of him. That's the system at work. They try to make Bill Cosby the poster boy for exploiting and taking advantage of women. And now we see who the real poster boys are. I'm sorry I got pumped up. Indeed, indeed, Dr. Niana Rasayan. Uh, if folks have a question you'd like to ask the doctor, 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star six, star six one, sorry, star six one, if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see, person that dialed in. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have a question for Dr. Rasayan? Your line should be open. Thomas in New York. Um, yes, I do. Uh, can you come right back to me? I'm in a um, loud environment. Sure. We'll uh, double back. Uh, the person who dialed in last four digits. Oh, this is Raz. Did you have a question for Dr. Rasayan? Raj, you should be with us. Uh, greetings to you, Gus. Um, greetings to you, Dr. Rasayan. It is an, an honor and a pleasure to um, have you on the program and listen to you. And thanks for the show, Gus. Yes, I had uh, two questions. Um, one was when when uh, you and Gus were discussing the black identity extremists um, and Gus uh, so so eloquently focused on the term very likely and the way that it was being used and used elucidated on that quite uh, eloquently, so I appreciate it. One thing that stood out to me is when the, the, the FBI stated 
that we will see retaliatory violence from black identity extremists um, in regards to um, retribution for mistreatment and abuse of black people by police. Now, this is, this is what tricks me with the words. Retaliatory means that you are responding to something that was done to you. So somebody did something incorrect to you, and you're responding in kind, meeting them wherever they met you to, to violate you in the first place. So just the psychology of that, can you just speak to the psychology of criminalizing uh, black self-respect? Because that's what I would see. And, and would you agree with that, that to, to, to the way that they're wording this is basically criminalizing the act of black self-respect. If someone says, you know what, I'm not going to take that abuse from this, this police officer and he's trying to kill me. I'm going to kill him first or something of that nature. Can you speak to that? Uh, can you hear me okay? Hello? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Well, you know, that's why I evoke um, Samuel Cartwright and made a reference to Satanania. And that's why I evoke Jonathan Medford. And we were talking about, um, you know, when black people have a sense of identity and they stand up for a sense of identity, it's not necessarily the white man. It's the system the white man has in place. And that system translates your sense of identity as being a threat to them because the threat, that's, that's their interpretation. It doesn't mean you're a threat to them. It just simply means, for example, when you play chess, your objective is to win. You want to checkmate the person on the opposite side of the board. That's the nature of the game. If somebody is trying to kill you, Bob Marley, I evoke the lyrics from, um, I shot the sheriff, but did not shoot the, the, the deputy. But one of the lyrics says, you know, kill them before they grow. And the, the thesis of that, one of the messages in that song is, we're going to kill your children before they grow up and become a formidable foe. So when you say, listen, if you're trying to kill me, and it's obviously trying to kill me, and my act of self-defense, logic will suggest that out of the OK Corral. You know, I pull out my coat, you pull out your coat. You're trying to kill me, I'm trying to kill you. So what they're doing is they're creating a mindset among all these little police precincts and all these backwood counties throughout the U.S. of A. That when you see somebody black, in your community that's conscious, they are a threat to you. And the same thing the U.S. government does. So in order for you to nip that in the bud, you need to basically engage a preemptive strike. You need to take them out before they can do you harm. So of course they're criminalizing consciousness. You becoming a criminal, you become conscious. That's the nature of, of the system of white supremacy. If you don't reinforce things that allow them to have their power over you, if you don't sit back and and conform, then you become a threat to their power. So you're absolutely correct. And I endorse what you're saying. That doesn't mean that I endorse black folk running around and pulling weapons and arms against policemen. It only means that if someone is trying to kill you, as I made a statement about chess, if somebody makes the move first, and chess quite always move first. So your next move has to be a defensive move. But if you understand the game, you don't have to move defensively. You can move offensively if you perceive yourself as equal. But the system, on the other hand, is set up to marginalize your power. So oftentimes you find yourself on defense. Professional football game, Monday night, Thursday night, Sunday night. If the offense not handling their business, the defense has to go out and work extra hard. If somebody is constantly shooting at you, you have to come up with tactics to duck and dodge and keep from being killed in the melee. But in the meantime, if they continue to do what they're trying to do to neutralize you, then you have no choice but to do what? 
engage in some offensive tactics to level the field. Do you understand my answer? Yes, yes, sir, absolutely. And I appreciate that. Um, and I wanted to ask if you had heard about the New Yorker and uh, the Daily Intelligencer had an article just speaking about, uh, uh, I'll say 45, being subpoenaed for documents related to sexual assault allegations that came out um, be right before he was elected president. And I remember um, there was also a story about a year or more ago about him um, raping a 12-year-old on Pedophile Island with Jerry, e Jerry Epstein. And then um, there was a 14-year-old that he had sexually assaulted who also said she witnessed him rape a 12-year-old before that. And I wanted you to tie in this, this, first of all, the lack of wide reporting on this information, if you're, if you're familiar with it, and how this would tie into Harvey Weinstein, because I just find it interesting that now that he um, is being called out publicly, all of these years have passed where all of these less powerful white people were being sexually assaulted and terrorized by, by Weinstein, but it only started to come out after he did the Khalif Browder documentary. Not before that, it seemed like it was okay for him to rape as many people as he wanted. No one was saying anything. But after the Khalif Browder documentary he made with Jay-Z, um, and he also talked about in that series that he would be doing more basically counter-racist material with Jay-Z, and I find it telling that it was after that that these allegations came out. And I just wanted you to speak to the fact that even less powerful whites will protect more powerful whites for rape, sexual assault, all of these things. And they'll hold that information until it's opportune for them to release it, to destroy someone or their character. Thank you. And I'll mute my line. Well, that's really a challenge for me to respond to. I'm going to steer clear talking specifically about the 45th in that regard because you have to understand that the 45th has a very unique layer of insulation that protects commoners or regular people from saying anything about the 45th. And you can just simply use um, what happened in the news recently um, when their sister's um, husband was lost in a zone where they were attacked. And he said that he said this over the phone. Congresswoman blah, blah, blah said he said that. And the widow of the the widow of the of the brother that passed said he said that. So he turns around and says that whatever everybody else said is not true, and nobody is willing to address and hold it accountable. And more importantly, we still haven't even seen the, the brother's tax returns yet. And he's doing all kinds of diversion their taxes to keep things focused. With regards to Weinstein, on the other hand, it's sort of like I will try to succinctly respond to that this way. When other powerful people crawl out the woodwork and say certain things happen to them, people that have less power feel okay. Um, they feel empowered, okay? And then when they realize how widespread it is, and Europeans do a lot of things, or should I say white Americans do a lot of things out of counting and measuring, like Dr. Nichols says. It's like the greater the number and the more important that number of people are on the hierarchy of what we deem as important, the more power they have. A 12-year-old girl is not going to have the kind of power that someone like Angelina Jolie has if she says X and Y happened to her, or some other powerful woman says X and Y happened to her, because that person is in the person's eyes, in the news, in the media, they are a person of power. Whereas the invisible 12-year-old child will say, well, this person is just a child, they don't really have any power. You also have to understand that the system by its very nature is designed to always protect Caucasian men, literally. That's the nature of it. 
it's designed to protect them. And we're deceiving ourselves if we think that the kinds of things that Caucasian men with no power can get away with, that men of color can get away with, that do have power, that do have wealth, that do have notoriety. Because the system, by its very nature, is designed to undermine anything that these people do because the system cannot afford to and maintain its current place in the world if the system allows these other people to begin to have some degree of parity or power that regular Caucasian men have. All you have to do is use common sense. They don't even want to give their women any power. And these are, these are the humans of the life forms that birth their children, that nurture their children, and they want to malign them. So when you look at Weinstein, Weinstein, and even when you look at the guy that was um, taking pictures of himself that was married to the lady that was in Hillary Clinton's corner helping her do any number of things, that's what we do for white folk, brother. I mean, you may not realize it. The protocol that was in place in penal institution wasn't literally put in place because you had an occasional or isolated or any number of black folk that were abusing children. They put that crap in place to protect a lot of these white boys because folk would kill them when they became incarcerated because people in the joint are incarcerated. They have a code of honor as much as they are misrepresented. You can't go out and abuse somebody's children, rape old women, and then wind up being incarcerated because when you get locked up, they will handle you. But politics basically is able to do what politics does because politics operates out of policies. And those policies are usually written by people to keep people in power that do not have the best interests of regular people at heart. For example, policemen are in place to make sure that the policies are reinforced at a local level. All right? Those policemen are there. Policemen are on your freeway to make sure that those things are reinforced at a state level, i.e. your state policeman, all right? And then when the state policeman cannot handle things, they have the military in place to reinforce those policies as well. So you have an army on board to take care of all the bullshit that you create. That's why the Native Americans used to say so frequently about the white man, whenever he came up with a treaty, they basically said, like, oh, it's just something you're going to tear up later on. We even do it to people today. You buy a house, the fine print. You buy a house, there's so many tiny damn little things that you need to read around buying a home that as soon as you finish signing all that damn paper, particularly if you don't have money to straight up purchase it, they'll tell you what? You got to sign a mortgage. And as you know, mortgage means until your ass dies. More until death, until you age out. And I hope I go off on a tangent, but let's not disillusion ourselves and think that things that white men do and get away with that black men and brown men can do and get away with. That's not the way the system of racism and white supremacy works. They will rewrite the laws, tweak the statutes, do all kinds of things to make sure that that law actually stretches and wraps around whatever it is that you allegedly did. That's my best answer. Context of white supremacy. Uh, let's see the, Black female caller in New York. Did you have a question for Dr. Rasayan? You should be with us. Yes, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Good evening, Dr. Rasayan, and thank you for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure um, to hear your perspective on different things. I've been taking notes, and um, I just had a few questions. 
The first one was around um, us, our discussion about words and terminologies. And there's something that I noticed um, on uh, the news, the way reporters have been pronouncing a specific country in Africa that um, where the um, black male uh, soldier uh, was was killed, and um, you know his mom was um, at odds with um, uh, the president over the way he handled informing her, and that was the country um, Niger. I'm hearing it pronounced Niger. I used to hear it pronounced Niger all the time, and when it first occurred. It was Niger, but now suddenly it's Niger. Um, and I had my own thoughts as to why that was. But I just wanted to know, had you ever heard of that country being called Niger before? No, I had not. And as a matter of fact, uh, I think it's interesting that you point that out because when you put that kind of um, uh, pronunciation on the last phoneme in the word, um, Niger, it carries the connotation of making it purely, totally Islamic. And as it totally makes it purely Islamic, and it wouldn't even matter if the people were practicing Muslims or not, but it carries the connotation of something negative about the entire environment. And more importantly, it polarizes people to think more about things, not even at a subliminal level, but at a threshold of consciousness where some people think it's subliminal, but that's not exactly subliminal. It's almost like I'm priming you to think about what happened to this person happened in a place that's not necessarily bad, but the people are bad in that place. Are you following me? So that's all by design. They do that crap all the time. I mean, they, they do it all the time. So I, I understand what you're saying, and I, I can see your concern about that, and I think that your observation is, a, is an excellent observation, and I think that you're going to find a lot more things going on on this planet that creates the kind of polarization between um, Muslim countries and quote-unquote so-called Christian countries because if you really understood Islam and Christianity, you would understand that Islam is really basically a higher vibration. And the reason why I say higher vibration, I hope Christians don't get upset, but if they understood anything about Christianity, they will understand that um, Muhammad was supposed to be the last prophet that represented the same God that Christians claim they worship. It's just that the Muslims don't call that God Yesu Christe or Yahweh Elohim or the Jesus. They call that God Allah, which means all in all, which means God is in everything. So I think that's by design. I think they do it intentionally. And as many linguists and individuals that we have affiliated with the um, BBC and um, that are affiliated with, um, how you pronounce it, um, Gus, R-E-I-T-E-R-S, you know, for the journalism, R-E-I-T-E-R-S. Reuters. Right. Reuters? Right. I normally okay, say well, Reuters, these, but... <laughs> right. Well, see, that's, that's why I spelled it, right? So, but the bottom line is, some people, I'm not talking about R-E-U-T-E-R-S. The bottom line is, the media, as Millie Fuller was starting off telling us at the beginning of the program, the media will program you. To, when you talked about the Native Americans and the Indians and how you view people and who's valued and who's not valued, Everything that goes on on this planet now in terms of how humans conduct themselves, we now know to be directly related to epigenetics, not just genetics. 
It's like, how do we program your genetic material to conduct itself in a given habitat, in a given environment, across generations with resources? So, for example, words. Sister, you, you are wise and in touch enough to know that the B word is not a word that black women would have ever used to describe each other, even in a teasing manner. They wouldn't call each other the B word. But some rap artists and some media have basically allowed that word to become part of the lexicon of a lot of inner-city African-American women when they talk about each other. And they talk about it like it's okay. You know, they're like, where's my B at? What's up, B? How you doing? And I'm saying B rather than to say the word. You feel me? So they did that deliberately. They do it all the time. That's hmm. what they are. It's interesting that you had that that um, uh, observation about it. My thought was like a, a lot less, uh, a lot, well, just sim- very simplistic. I just believe that they just wanted to keep people from saying nigger, looking at the word and saying nigger because this happened to a black person. That was just my thought about it. But I never thought about the Islamic part of it because the average person um, who knows nothing about countries in Africa would look at that word and say nigger. And because they had to speak about it a lot and they had to put it on the crawl a lot, and because most of um, the person who is in charge of followers are very, very simplistic themselves, they would just not say, oh, that word is Niger. They would say nigger. And I just think that they didn't want to even make that connotation around that word. That's what I thought. So they just say, let's, let's make it Niger. No, I want you to understand that, you see, in, in, the, in the military, when people are doing things, they don't just do things for one cohort of people. They triangulate. They try to reach mm. as many people as they can. And keep in mind that the term that you just used, that you extract from the, the, the consonants and the vowels in that word, that is, that's reducing the perception of an international issue to an issue that's peculiar to the United States lexicon and how African-American people have been so marginalized by that word. Are you following me? So yes. that particular word is a word that's a major eyesore in terms of the, the genetic um, material of African-Americans. You follow me? You meet Africans, and if they haven't been here for a while, they have to learn what it means and the context of what it means. Are you following me? So that's something that's peculiar to people here, but you have to understand system of racism and white supremacy is not just localized to the U.S. If you start looking at things at an international level, Look at it from the perspective of what does that say about what happened to this person when they said these people were basically ambushed, okay? They said that they were almost set up, or they said it was an act of terrorism. And that does two things. That allows the people of color that live here to wind up thinking like, oh, my God, man, look how these Africans, Africans did that to a black man. He was the only one that was, according to reports, that was separated from the other three individuals. I'm just going to call them a squad that was separated from the other three individuals, he was found, I think, like maybe 48 hours later. And he, and the people may not realize it, unfortunately, it's part of general military protocol that when a person, when you, when you lose a set of boots on the ground, you don't come back and make available the remains for the public to see. That's something that has to be worked out specifically in certain jurisdictions when the person's remains come home and whether or not the uh, mortician or the people at the quote-unquote funeral home thinks that they can actually work with whatever it was they received back from a zone of insurgency or battlefield. Because 
the average person, you see what's in that coffin. So they were talking about she wanted to identify. It's no telling what that individual's remains look like, what was left of his vessel, given that we don't know what kind of rounds actually dispirited that person, whether or not certain um, animals may have gotten to that person's remains in that environment. But the word Niger, a Niger, it carries the connotation of the, the lexicon or jargon that would be used by people that might speak Arabic and possibly Farsi. And so that mm. polarizes people to say like, oh my God. So Muslims probably did that. Mm. Yes, that's an yes. Islamic country. Nobody is thinking at an international level that they are trying to avoid saying the N-word or nigger. You follow mm-hmm. me? Because that's I understand. Ironically, the way you pronounce that arrangement of alphabet in English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One, one other question, Gus. I just wanted to um, be speaking of words again. Um, I've been taking notes and uh, some of the words that we used tonight were undermine and profile, cointel pro, watching, action, reaction, chaos, phenomena. Um, I've been to a couple of um, Dr. Welsing's, I had been to a, doctor, a couple of Dr. Welsing's lectures, and often she would say something very profound, um, and then she would say, you see how the vibe changed? And um, she was talking about the vibration in the room. So with all of these things that are occurring in the world and all of these things that we are um, being bombarded with, could it possibly be that this is just something to change the vibration? Because when you add all of these things, this chaos, this, um, these um, uh, murders and these, all of these things that are these negative things that are happening and it brings things out of balance. You always talk about Ma'at. When you do that, you bring it out of balance and you change the vibration of it from something and you lower the vibration. Not to simplify world events, but could this be like, could that be like the basis of it all to, uh, you know, make you fearful all the time, wondering all the time so that you're not even um, taking you out of your natural state, weakening you, weakening, you know, everyone, the planet, so that whatever plans can, that are laid are easily carried out. And that's all. If you could just speak to that, I'd appreciate it. Um, and that's well, all actually, I had. I'll mute my line. Well, you are so profound in your observations. Of course, everything is related to vibration, but you have to be mindful of the fact that um, a lot of people of color, we don't really have a very good understanding of spirituality at that level because some of us have been so well trained with religion that our religion has replaced our sense of spirituality. And so we have embraced spirituality more so than we actually acknowledge. I mean, we have embraced religion more so than we embrace and acknowledge our spirituality. So when you can actually shift people's consciousness by totally changing the frequency that they're operating on. That's why black people always tell you very often, it's part of our culture. Don't you call me out of my name. And the N-word that you just evoked, that pisses off a lot of black people and it evokes pain in a lot of people. It's like because you call them out of their name and you reduce them to something that's less than human. So all this by design. So when I used the term a little while ago about triangulating, these people are not just interested in controlling Africans or blacks that live in America, they want to control the whole damn world. And if you want to control the whole damn world, you haven't got to spend your time trying to polarize a small group of people with the N-word, i.e. nigger word, because we got dumb rap artists doing that shit enough on a regular basis. 
But you want to happen at an international level. Do you realize how many wars are fought over people's religious orientation? And so when you can create that old classic battle between Muslims and Christians, you can really get people to be polarized in their beliefs. You have Christians today that would say, I'm Jehovah Witness, I'm Baptist, I'm African and Methodist Episcopalian, and they'll debate about who's going to go to heaven because of their denomination. But when you can actually polarize like 1.8 billion people against another 2 billion people, you can create a whole bunch of chaos. So you do change the vibration because the vibration changes when people are communicating with words and language that amplifies negativity. And negativity by its very nature, it takes something out of its natural state and shifts it into an altered state so that the person can try to find balance. But people are not going to be neutral because people have emotions. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, um, for answering my questions. For sure. Appreciate that. Uh, my pleasure. Thomas in New York, uh, are you able to get your question in now, or did you need a bit more time? Thomas in New York? I am able, God, thank you for taking my call again. Um, thank you, Dr. Vassayan, for coming back to the show. Um, good evening to all the callers as well. Um, yeah, I've heard Africans from Niger, Niger, and Niger, and um, Dr. Vassayan, um it's right on point. Usually those who are Islamic, um, they, they, they call it Nigeria, and usually the Christian, um, Christians from there, they call it Niger. Um, but either way, that's a name given to it by the um, occupants that named it, put the borders there, who are white. Um, the, um, the Weinstein, um, what, what um, Roz was talking about, I see that um, um, he had uh, him and Jay-Z and this guy, another um, Jewish white man named Aaron Kaplan, uh, along with Will Smith. They've been working on the Emmett Till story. And um, I, I could um, see this. He's coming out with more of this um, black content um, causing it. You know, just a correction for Dr. Lassian, Trump is the 44th president of the United States, which is very significant. Um, he's not the 45th president. Um, my, my I never call him the 45th. I just, I just call him the 45th. I don't even call him the president, okay? Got you. But, um, but I just want you to know, go ahead. Uh, white psychology, uh, white supremacy. Um, my question to you is, are we doing injustice calling this system or calling this white supremacy? Is that putting us into a play on words where subconsciously we think that whites, uh, we automatically internalize that whites are superior to us. So we I've, I've, had this converse, I've had this conversation with this before, and I put it in context. And I, 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 I usually spend a little bit of time clarifying, and I've done this before. I guess you could probably go back and get the second or third program that, that I was on, and I pointed out that the, the language, if you understand it, that's not what Dr. Wilson meant. That's not what Neely Fuller meant when they implied that the system of racism and white supremacy or the system of white supremacy. They mean that the system is designed to allow white people to operate from a supreme platform. And the supreme platform comes from 
who controls the wealth and who controls the resources and who controls the language of the people, i.e. the colonizers, those people are in a superior position in terms of the actual planet, all right? But spiritually, it does not mean that. So nobody is implying that they are supreme. And I'm only using it interchangeably with the jargon of the language that we're using as we're talking about what they do. In no way, shape, fashion, or form am I alluding to in any way that they are supreme. I always call them my vanilla brothers and sisters who are hybridized versions, which means they've been modified and genetically tampered with. And back to your comment about the 44th and the 45th president, I could give you some data to tell you that you actually have 47, all right? But I would love for you to send me a reference to what you're talking about when you made reference to um, the 45th as being the 44th, because I know the 44th has to do with infinity and the number in the whole nine yards. So I would love for you to, I, I, not necessarily off the air, but you can email me on Apple, Tom's, Oranges, Nice Sunday. That's Aton, A-T-O-N-S, D-N-A at L-L.com, the references that you are borrowing from to make the statement about the 45th being the 44th. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I could I could do it very fast now. Grover Cleveland was elected twice. Uh, he served, and someone else served, and he was elected again. So they give him two terms as president. I believe it's Grover Cleveland. Um, so they he so therefore this one guy was the president. And he occupies two of those numbers. Um, that's that's why I say that. Um, oh yeah, my, I don't know about that. Okay, go ahead. I got you. Um, the drugs. Um, I work at the hospital. And um, there's a lot of young black kids and um, young black teenagers and young adults in the psychological, um, uh, having some mental illness problems. And also, um, even though that they're marking the opioid abuse um, as a white thing, uh, I see a lot of our young kids um, also drinking the um, these opioids um, and, and different Substances, I guess they, they call it drink or lean. Um, now, um, I'm asking you as a, a psychological, you know, expert here. Um, SSRIs, um, which are the Adderalls and the Prozacs and things, they, they um, mimic methamphetamines in, um, to the brain. And, of course, the opioids um, have the same um, chemical in inducing as, um, as heroin. Do you see meth and heroin being... Um, big drugs in the black area in the coming future? And that's my last question. Thank you, Gus. Okay, but listen, brother, don't go anywhere yet. Are you going to have to tell me how you came up with thinking that um, Alderaan, even though Alderaan is closer to something like cocaine um, and and, um, and um, you're going to have to tell me how you came up with that being an SSRIs of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And serotonin is... Um, a neurotransmitter in the brain that people usually associate with depression and moods, but it works in addition with dopamine in the brain. And I don't want you and I to get too technical in talking about certain things, but you can tell me later on um, your rationale for saying that. But to answer your question, no, I don't think black folks are going to start moving more toward methamphetamines and things like that, because I think that black folks are going to find themselves, unfortunately, more chemically sedated with the food because these people have begun to put so many chemicals in the food to do any number of things to the moods of black folk. And a lot of the major moods that change in black folk are directly related to what I always like to amplify, white sugar, 
white flour, phosphoric acid, and sodas, aspartame, and dyed sodas, which turns into basically a carcinogen inside of the human body. So these people are interested in controlling the vast majority of us rather than a select group of us who are inclined to use um, substances. And conversely, on the other hand, um, heroin and opiates in general, whenever they were um, completely, totally widespread in African-American communities, those, uh, that compound was viewed, uh, accessing it was considered criminal behavior. But when white folks started doing it as of late, they now call it a medical condition, and they even make available something to reverse people overdosing, and a number of um, fire stations and paramedics have it on board in a lot of major cities to take care of what happens to um, white men and white women when they get too much into their bodies. As far as our kids using certain kinds of things, that's something that you're going to have to revisit for me with a little bit more clarity and some more specificity for me to respond to because um, our kids playing video games and a number of our kids not having their fathers at home, you have a cocktail of young male adolescents zooming around with testosterone running in their bodies and too much damn epinephrine dancing around in their bodies because they're playing video games and not eating the kinds of foods to give them a certain level of balance. So that's, a, that's almost like a whole completely independent show to talk about what you just alluded to because you said you work around um, psychotropics or meds, you work in a hospital. But there's a whole arena of meds that you can get damn near online under the rubric of what we call orthomolecular medicine. And those things you can actually get from getting certain types of extracts and vitamins and minerals from the average high-end health food store, which over a period of time in your body can actually give rise to changing and modification of certain neurotransmitters. For example, something like too much vitamin B6 that's easily assimilated in your body is going to give rise to tryptophan, the same compound that people get when they eat too much turkey over the holidays to make black folk get the itis and make them sleepy because it relaxes people. And tryptophan is in the chain that gives rise to serotonin, which you are talking about when you talk about SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So we haven't got to give you drugs to change your mood. We can do it with the food. Are you there? Uh, yes, yeah, sir. I'm still here. I'm sorry. Did I answer your question, Thomas, in New York, or at least the portion of it he said? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And um, I just wanted to, to add, uh, I was at the hospital, and um, there was a white woman who came in, and um, she was strung out on meth, and she was pregnant, and she was having a baby. And, uh, of course, um, social services was there to take the baby from her when she gave birth. Um, but the baby came out addicted to the meth, so they started giving the baby SSRIs, uh, as um, I guess sort of like when people on heroin and you start giving them methadone to wean them off um, so that that's what they started doing to, to deal with the baby's withdrawal to the, um, the the methamphetamine. But if you type in methamphetamine and SSRIs, a bunch of journals will pop up that will link those two things together. And I'll meet my line. Thank you for taking my call, Gus. And Dr. Rossian has always loved talking to you. For sure. You have a great day, my brother. I was uh, going to tell them about they do that stuff to kind of like get the baby to chill out, but we're about to get too technical. Appreciate it. Uh, the caller 9859-9859. Did you have a question for Dr. Rasayan? You should be with us. Uh, 
Last four digits, 9859. 9859, did you have a question for Dr. Rasayan? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, my question, um, I was calling about the whole AFRICOM. You know, they're saying that they're not coming out of uh, out of Africa now. And the whole FBI thing, as far as um, black identity extremists, you know, I, you know, I, I kind of see a parallel in them trying to connect the dots between, you know, the black men and women over here and then them staying in Africa. Could you uh, give us a little, um, you know, breakdown or insight to what you see the the future problems that we might be having, you know, as far as us being labeled black identity extremists and them not wanting to get out of Africa now? Okay, that's a really complex um, question for me to engage in. I'm trying to figure out exactly how to approach it because, um, um, let me see. Okay, are you able to make your question a little yes. bit more specific? Okay. Yes. Uh, as far as um, we we'll see that um, you know, Islam is an all-encompassing religion. As far as it, it's a really a totality of, of everything that Christians, Hebrews, and you know everybody believes, or they say that they believe, and now that there's got some type of either made up enemy over there, and it's not just their enemy that they're going to be going after is the you know the innocents. Now, as far as us over here, you know we're starting to a few of us start, you know we're starting to come together, talk literally about what it is, who we are, you know, we're realizing that. And them, you know, basically trying to recolonize Africa. Is there any worry or anything that you've seen or anything that sparked you? Could you, could you, could you speak on that? Okay, well, and if, and if I don't touch what you're talking about, you're just probably going to have to ask me. Are you familiar with Coltan, C-O-L-T-A-N? Yes, it's in these phones that we're using. Okay, precisely, all right? And Colton represents the new diamonds and gold, all right? And yeah, when you look at Africa, right, and when you look at the new, um, the I don't want to necessarily say the rise, it's just that they kind of keep that news from us here. We don't get the international news in terms of what's going on with Africa, all right? And as a matter of fact, as, as much as I respect the brother, there was also a, a rise in activity during the 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 the, the, um, the president that a lot of our people admire the the brother that just left the White House. So the only thing that I can say to you is because that information is so I don't want to say it's censored. You really have to talk to people that are in that environment to get the specifics. But I think a lot of that has to do with how they can, in my personal opinion, um, you might say create. Um, a set of in-place guardians that represent the best interests of the U.S. and European countries to try to milk everything they possibly can milk out of Mother Africa to do what they want to do with their technology. And that means yes. that the people become secondary to that. So in order for that to happen, and they need to have a strong military showing and have more boots on the ground and more resources readily available because the people are beginning to become acutely aware well, I shouldn't say acutely aware. The people be beginning to become more restless about people just robbing the hell out of Africa and not giving Africa anything back. Yes. Are you following what I'm saying? Am I answering your question, giving you some perspective about it? 
Yes, uh, um, I know because I'm, I'm trying to. And so because that's critical, uh, the boots on the ground translate into, it's kind of like um, the fox watching the hen house. The thieves yeah. are, are, are increasing their ranks to monitor the resources that they want to extract from a certain habitat. And they want to align themselves with as many resources as they can, even if those individuals are pawns. You know how you may go to a country and you might find like some rangers or some green beret or some seals went over to train a certain cohort of people that live in that habitat. They might send yes. over 12 of their people to train 300 of these other people. But they don't just train them to do, um, to protect their territory. They train them to have an allegiance to the people that train them and the resources that the people that sent over the folk to train them so they can have safe passage or access to getting. Are you following my logic? Yeah. And by the way, a number of people that don't go along with the game in that part of the world, they are quickly neutralized or relocated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now uh, is, is there any connection that you see, or do you think this is all... You know, I, I know that these people, they move three, four moves ahead. They think three, four, five moves ahead. You know, the grand chessboard, that is big news of Brinsky, all that other stuff. But as far as being that black identity extremist, you think these in these future years, that's going to play a part in us not wanting them to, you know, A, we want to come back, you know, rule our own kingdom, but you know, you know, is there anything that you can speak on about that? And then I, I just leave it alone. And listen Don't go to anywhere yet. I want to make sure I understand what you're asking me. Uh, you're talking about black identity. I mean, amplify that a little bit so I can understand what you're saying, because I don't want us to get so abstract that I'm not able to okay. Okay. try yeah, to respond. I, I, yeah, let me let me do this. So you can go on with your show. I know you got other callers. But as far as, okay, I'm a black man. I'm I'm awake now. You know, I'm trying to do my little job, go over here, open up some schools in Ghana. You know, uh, I'm trying to do my open thing, open up some schools over here. Okay, now I'm trying to put some people into, you know, some colleges and universities because, you know, now, you know, we, we got the money. And now, okay, we're trying to take over the government, you know, starting at the local and then the state level and, and, you know, and all of that. Do you think that us trying to actually do that now, being labeled as black identity extremists, can get into the way? That's a great question. Um, I think that might be part of what the Fed's rationale is to basically say that if you want to have any kind of international business with the U.S., you don't want to be affiliated with these individuals that have been identified as that. I think that's what they want. But I also think you take somebody like Akon. Akon yes. has been very active you know, paying his dues back home to the Senegalese and doing, you know, like water and food and the whole nine yards, right? And mm -hmm. Akon technically would be considered as a damn ex uh, black identity extremist. But Akon yes. is what I consider a gentle, classy businessman. You follow me? And yes. because individuals that take a stand and take a position and verbalize their thought, like the people that were speaking out very candidly about Black Lives Matter, when the media finish putting their spin on them, the media will have them typecast a particular way. And as a result, um, the people in our government identify these people as potential risk. If you remember, there was a scene when Spike Lee did um, 
the autobiography of Malcolm X, or Malcolm X proper, there was a scene when Denzel Washington playing Malcolm went outside and raised his hand on the sidewalk when the Muslims had lined up to go and check on our brother Ben, whatever brother's name was, and he raised his fist and he, you know, closed his fist and pointed and all the Muslims went away. And then you saw this white policeman from whatever the precinct was in New York say, uh, that's too much power for one man to have. So when yes. you look at individuals that are identified as black identity extremists, I mean, you can back up to Malcolm, you can back up to Kwame Ture, you can even acknowledge Harry Belafonte, you can even acknowledge Martin Luther King. But any Garvey, yeah. yeah, oh, most, no, most, no, no doubt. I didn't mean to leave out a brother Garvey, but you can acknowledge. And we won't even talk about what they did to him. But the bottom line is, and how they use black folk to undermine what he was trying to do. But the bottom line is this, my brother. Anytime you stand up the helm of a ship to guide your people to shore, Europeans no, have their telescopes trained on you, just like they were looking for the chief when the Native Americans was like trying to engage these folk in battle. And they would tell them, shoot the one that has the most feathers, the eagle feathers, because they do special rituals around the chief. And so that same philosophy applies today. Individuals that are very articulate in the black community, that stand up and stand firm for things, the media would do any number of things. First, they want to see how popular they are, how much power do they have. And then they realize they're popular and they have power. They start trying to cut them off at their ankles to like undermine what they're standing for. But Africans, mm -hmm. on the other hand, oftentimes find themselves, I'm talking about continental Africans, at a disadvantage to sort of like sift through the propaganda and find the news that really relates to black people because black people here have been misled about traditional Africans. They stereotype a lot of Africans in terms of the Nigerians really get a bad rap. And so yeah. we don't talk to each other. And then when we don't talk to each other, the media takes that silence, that void of us not talking, and fill in that silence with propaganda to create further dissension. So I don't think that what's going on in continental Africa is going to be impacted in a noticeable, adverse manner because of what is being said about um, um, the BIEs. I don't think it's going to have that kind of long-term effect. The reason why I hope unfolds in this conversation, because I said to Gus several times before, when we have a brilliant scholar, activist, warrior, goddess, queen, and I'm like Dr. Francis Quest Wilson, when people like that crossover, it's just like um, Baba Asa Hilliard, Baba Dick Gregory, depending upon where their spirits are when they cross over, they do not abandon us. They align themselves with us to try to get their work done. Yes. Spirits are not restricted to a body. So there's some things that are already in place in the universe to check these hybrids running around trying to take control of the planet. And I think right now, statistically, Caucasians probably make up about 9.4% of the entire population on the planet. That means that men make up probably less than 5% of the men on the planet, which is really ironic because <laughs> them and the isolated Arab here and there and the isolated Japanese, they control over 96% of the wealth on the planet. So that tells you somebody's doing some shit that's real good. Yeah, they're telling a good story. Well, I appreciate y'all having me on. Actually, I'm a first-time caller and listener. Um, but, man, yeah, uh, hotel, man, keep it going. I'm going to tune in. I'm going to get off this phone and tune in. Thank you, sir. 
uh, the person. Oh, Emmy, did you have a question for Dr. Rasayan? Thank you for the sound click, sound check. Uh, Emmy, did you have a question for Dr. Rasayan? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, everybody. Um, Dr. Rasayan, I was wondering, um, well, quickly, I'm not 100% sure if, are you a practicing psychiatrist or psychologist? Like, do you treat people? Okay. I do see people, but I don't plug into third-party payment and panels. Like a, a number of psychiatrists, they won't take your Kaiser, your Blue Cross, your Cigna, or your, they won't take it because what's paid with capitation, they don't get enough. But I exclusively, this is probably going to get me in an awkward situation, but my clients that I exclusively work with primarily are people of color, almost black folk in particular, because I think we have enough psychologists. I'm a behavior neuroscientist, by the way. My master's degree is in clinical psychology. I'm a behavior neuroscientist. And the kind of intervention oh. that I do will lean more towards what you guys would call, well, they call it orthomolecular psychiatry, but it would lean more toward if we're going to manipulate the molecules in your brain and your neurotransmitters, there are some natural sources that you can use to do that. You follow me? Fantastic, which leads me into my question. Um, I guess it would be twofold. I think there's a lot of information on the Internet um, about what people call meditation, but I do know that like studies do show that it is helpful. And I was wondering in a practical way, if you could share with us, if you agree, and then um, like how one could given, you know, it's not like you can go sit on a mountain and tap in or zone out. So what would be a good way to do that as to help fortify your mental health as number one and then if you're not necessarily uh, agreeing with what people call meditation then what other forms of self-healing or self-protection mental health wise would you recommend for victims of white supremacy that's an excellent question i hope you don't go anywhere first of all meditation basically means the art of centering or finding a still state okay that's what it means you find a state of being still right and if you're going to find a state of being still, that means that you need to take yourself out of beta or definitely gamma, which means very, very high-frequency brainwave activity, even um, out of alpha or down to alpha, like maybe at about the lowest end of alpha down to um, theta, you know, like about four cycles up to seven cycles per second. That would be where theta and alpha overlap. That's like the brainwave pattern. It's almost like a signal that's dancing across your brain that bespeaks relaxation. And contrary to popular belief, relax, meditation is like a deep state of being relaxed and at peace and allowing your body to just flow. You haven't got to sit down with some particular word in your mind. You haven't got to look at a candle. You haven't got to recite a mantra. You haven't got to sit in semi-lotus or lotus position. You can lie back in bed or you can sit in a really comfortable chair, turn off all your cell phone devices, all your technology and your lights and your whole nine yards and just slowly deep breathe. And your body will go into a state of low alpha to early um, theta, which means you kind of relax and chill. And breathing is, is critically important to that. Yes, I do recommend meditating. I think meditating is an excellent way for your body to sort of like chill out, so to speak. But in addition to that, I would recommend that if you're going to learn how to meditate, that you need to make sure that you hydrate very well either before or immediately afterwards. Because if your body chills and relaxes, this might sound kind of awkward, but you're going to want to, not you're going to want to pee, but as you settle your body, whatever metabolites are floating around in your body that you don't necessarily want, you want to be able to release. 
And your body doesn't function well anyway unless it's calmed down, if it's not really relaxed. So, yes, meditation is very effective, but I would strongly recommend that all people of color learn how to find some music that doesn't necessarily have any lyrics in it, uh, something instrumental that they can chill and relax to that's not going to make them think, something that's sort of like, kind of like mellow, that's the best way to describe with, without talking about whether or not you resonate to D or which chakra you're vibrating out of, your base chakra or your middle chakra. You need to learn how to eat foods to help you stay in a chill mode, all right? And foods that will help you stay in a chill mode for black people in particular mean foods that do not have a lot of colorants in them, foods that have basically been shot up with a lot of um, byproducts to preserve the food, preservatives and colors, and foods that don't have a lot of um, sugar, salt, anything white, white flour in it, white rice, things like that, because those foods are atypical and contrary to your nature. I'm, I'm trying my best to answer your question. And another thing, a lot of people, black people, sadly, and I say sadly, don't really know how to swim. One of the better ways that people of color can learn how to relax and find their body at a level of peace. And if you don't know how to swim, go with a couple of people that do, do know how to swim and get in some shallow water. And if you're nitpicky like I am and you have to access a public pool, you want to go in the morning when very few people have been there. That means that there's probably less chlorine floating around in the water and there's less nanoparticles of folk having urinated in the damn water. So you have to go into an environment where you can really relax and chill out. And if you don't know anything about meditating, one of the simplest things you can do to allow yourself to meditate, meditate is to sit back, inhale slowly, exhale slowly, but always inhale very deeply and put your tongue in the roof of your mouth or take your tongue and allow it to touch um, your upper incisors, your top teeth, while you're pressing your tongue as best you can to the roof of your mouth and inhale slowly and exhale slowly. Ideally, inhale through your mouth and inhale through your nose and exhale through your mouth. And that'll induce a state of relaxation like you wouldn't believe all by itself. Just don't do it leaning over and don't do it when you're very tired because you could probably faint. Yes, I do believe in meditation and I think it does work. Thank you. Gus, can I ask one more question? Proceed. Um, and this, I have this question now that I know your specialty. Um, and I'm curious because I'm fascinated with neuroplasticity. I think it's amazing because I think at some point people feel that once they have a behavior pattern that's ingrained, that there's nothing they can do about it. They can't change it. Or once they reach a certain age, they can't acquire new um patterns of behavior or like learn new skills and things like that. And with the meditation or considering the meditation, what evidence have you seen that that or anything like that has an effect on repairing trauma, like on a neurological level? You would really <laughs> probably need to go and look at some old classic scientists, American, or just go online, Google it, Bing it, Yahoo it, and look at the effect of our meditation it's a term called psychoneuroimmunology, all right? Psychoneuroimmunology, P-S-Y-C-H-O-N-E-U-R-O-I-M-M-U-N-O-L-O-G-Y, psychoneuroimmunology. And you will find that there is a lot of literature that talks about the health benefits, but with specific regard to neuroplasticity, you have to do something, all right? Neuroplasticity has to do with the brain basically 
generating new neural neuronal pathways. It's almost like um, your brain is like laying down new asphalt for cars to travel, and the cars are basically like miniaturized versions of neurotransmitter pulsating along superhighways, if you will. You have to do something. You're just not able to just sit back, okay? Now, on the other hand, if you know how to meditate and do what they call um, um, detailed imagery, you can imagine certain things, and that will have effect that will allow you to be more um, instrumental and playing an active role in keeping your brain resilient because neuroplasticity just only means that your brain is not literally rewiring itself. It means that it's rerouting signals. And if you reroute signals in the brain, it's sort of like if a person was coming across your front lawn, coming to your flat or your house on a regular basis, they will sort of like um, degrade the grass growing in that particular area. But if they went to another path, then the grass will have an opportunity to grow back. But if they went through a long, narrow path, then there would be a path there. So if it rained, the rain would find this stuff streaming down where you carve those little paths. So neuroplasticity is similar to that. So if you use the area, it doesn't mean you're wearing it out. It means you're carving a new path and carving new paths and anything for your brain. And you're right. It can go well into your so-called old age, all right, as long as you're doing things because you have to do something. If that means reading, playing chess, swimming, bike riding, rapping, reciting um, rhymes, it, it doesn't matter. If you use your brain, whatever parts of the brain that you engage in to use, your brain will have the ability to generate a phenomenon very similar to what they call collateral sprouting. It's almost like you get new buds of neuronal pathways to just prop up and pop up there. That is now, they so don't, cool. They don't, they don't <laughs> crop up as fast when you get, um, like when women reach menopause and men get into their late, late 60s, early 70s, they don't crop up as fast, but they still crop up. You follow me? Yes. Well, thank you very much for answering my questions, and enjoy your evening. Thank you. Thank you. Indeed. Call her at 5136-5136. Did you have a question for Dr. Rasayan? So when we're going to get hot on some real gangster stuff, man? I do not know. Perhaps we have a gangster on uh, line 5136, last four digits, 5136. Did you have a question for Dr. Rasion? preferably something gangster? This big victim. How you doing, guys? Greetings. Hope all is well in Alabama. Good. Thank you. Um, yes, doctor, Do you? I have two questions. Uh, do you know any um, doctors and uh, psychiatrists in Birmingham, Alabama? I can pull up some for you, but I won't be able to pull them up for you right now. And I'm not I mean, black. Off the top of my head. I know exactly what you mean, but oh, okay. you want somebody with, a, with enough melanin to accent, accentuate what you're about. I, exactly. I think this is a still down there in Birmingham, and it may be one brother, but I really need to go into my directory from the Association of Black Psychologists and pull them up. I will say this to you, though, to be 100% honest with you, and this is not implying that I think I am really unique or anything. Uh, it certainly doesn't imply that I think I'm better. But a, 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 a number of our colleagues have been so well trained. For example, when this was asking me do I practice, I have a um, diplomat, diplomat certification license status from the Association of Black Psychologists, right? In 2013, 
I relinquished my what I call my mainstream license, or I stopped doing stuff in 2007 at the school psychologist level. Point being, just so I can put it out there and keep it real, um, my certification uh, acknowledgement to do stuff in in psychology now. I don't want to say it's restrictive because I made a decision myself. I only do stuff exclusively, specifically with black and brown people. That doesn't mean I, I won't help vanilla brothers and sisters. It just means that I dedicate my training and my resources to black and brown folk because I think there's enough vanilla brothers and sisters out here to handle that. And Asians have theirs as well. But I can go into a directory and identify and then follow up with who I think is really legit down in Birmingham. And believe it or not, Birmingham has quite a few conscious people in Birmingham. Progressive conscious people. You just have to find out where they are. Okay, we got a new we got a new male, a young male. And um Birmingham that I could I'm sorry for interrupting you. I apologize. I didn't hear you say what? I said we got a new mayor in Birmingham. He's young, young black male that um, a lot of Black young black turned at him, put in office. Well, I understand. Did you say mulatto? No, black. I got that black. part. No, we got a young black, a young black uh, mayor mm-hmm. that just got elected in Birmingham, and a lot of uh, young progressive blacks put him in office. Well, well you know. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, and this is not to say anything about my younger brothers and sisters because sometimes they are very articulate and they do what needs to get done that older people did not do, which I think is excellent. So kudos out to the young African-American mayor down in Birmingham. No matter who you have in office, particularly if we're operating out of um, folks, um, melanin, um, you know, ideally, there will be some consciousness that just automatically presents itself there. But you have to hold all of all of us have to be held accountable. And sometimes, not sometimes, all the time, all of us need to be reminded of on whose shoulders we stand to get where we are. You follow what I mean? And you can do that with diplomacy, and sometimes you can just do it with candor. But you have to let them know that they have a responsibility, you know, to their folk and see white folk turn this into a dichotomy. Vanilla brothers just say, well, now that you got a black mayor, are you only going to answer issues to impact black people? And because I don't know the ratio of African-Americans to um, Caucasian-Americans in Birmingham, I don't know whether it's 65, you know, like 35, I don't really know. And I don't know how many Latino brothers and sisters may not live there and what sprinkling of Asians may live there. But you do have to let people know that when you get in positions of power, you know, you need to be held accountable. Well, I can tell you that uh, a lot of whites are moving back in downtown Birmingham and down at the Civil Rights uh, District. But uh, my second question is, I, I don't I don't think you probably, I don't, since you're a doctor, you probably won't answer it, but do you think that white people suffer from a, disconnect, a, spiritual, a spiritual disconnect from God and um, I'll listen to you. I'll mute my line, and thank you for answering. If you, Don't if go you nowhere know. yet, brother. Hold tight. Okay. You're still there? Okay. I'm still there. Um, I'm not going to say the term, but if you email me, I will send you the term. And, and my 
first book available to the public called Reality Check. I have a section in that book that talks about the collective body of avidya. Avidya, and it's another word in front of it, but that has to do with their lack of spiritual consciousness as a people. So in, in, in my efforts to answer your question, spiritual consciousness comes with life experiences that make you grow. You follow me? But because so many vanilla brothers and sisters have come into the world um, with a sense of entitlement because of the lack of melanin in their skin, they have not had the kinds of life experiences in their current incarnation to realize that institutional racism, the system of racism and white supremacy is real because they have inherited uh, an, an avenue that makes them feel entitled and they have inherited life experiences that does entitle them to any number of things that brown and black people could not get. So they do lack collectively as a people the kind of spiritual maturity that you are talking about. Definitely, as a people. That does not mean one individual vanilla brother sister here cannot be spiritually conscious, but as a people collectively, you are absolutely correct. That's not my opinion. That's known globally. Thank you for answering my question. Red in Ohio, did you have a question for Dr. Rasayan? I uh, suspect something opioid related. Um, actually, um, not so much to, to do with the opioid epidemic. However, um, I did want to recently say, oh, I'm sorry, thank you for taking my call, by the way. Um, they had recently raided one of the recovery centers out here. But of course, um, when they were reporting it on the news, no one was arrested. So. Um, that's definitely an example I've understood of racism, white supremacy. Um, the question I do have, I feel like um, I, I do speak about my sister a lot, and I feel that she is the one who's definitely inspired me to try to learn more. But I'm at the point to where I'm feeling like um, I guess I'm more, I hate to say the word, but militant, more militant than she is. And I'm not sure if, like, you know, it, I, I don't know, like, how that could have came about, and I'm feeling like maybe that she is not as, um, like, uh, suspicious of, of white people as I am, and that's, you know, kind of, you know, concerning. Like, how could there be, well, you know, there is some suspicion or there is some, well, um, consciousness, I guess, to her but still not that consciousness to where she feels like, well, with her, with her child, she would be, she just wants to, anyone to love the child, whether that's a, you know, white person, black person, whatever. So I just kind of wonder if you are able to speak to that. I'm sorry, I didn't quite put it into the, a easily understandable question, but thank you. Well, don't go anywhere because I want to make sure I understand what you're saying first, because I, if, if I knew you better and I, I could just know that I'll tease people sometimes, but you mind telling me uh, uh, how old your sister is relative to your age? Is she younger or older or what? Oh, she's actually um, about two years older than me. Okay. And um, you mind telling me what your sister does and in, in terms of for her income or her profession or what you do? Because these are all confounds. They influence how people interact. 
Oh, you know, what, yeah. does, what, what, what does she do as a professional? I mean, how does she bring her, you know, how does she get her paper? You know, how does she sustain her household, you know? Well, she works in the um, insurance industry, and I work in, like, the finance industry, not so much like, you know, like, basically banking, not so much, I guess, not finance per se. Okay. And so you're asking me to give you my opinion class perspective on why you present to be more as the radical or the militant, and she seems to be more mainstream? Yes, it seemed like it mainly occurred um, after she had her child, which is concerning to me because, you know, with everything that I have been trying to pay more attention to, and especially with, like, the clips played earlier in the call where, you know, there are, you know, white children who are terrorizing, you know, black children, and it's she has a son, and if we are not teaching children that, you know, you should be suspicious and you should not, you know, just assume that, okay, well, a, a, your quote-unquote white friend makes a chicken joke or, you know, you liking chicken or calling you Kool-Aid or whatever, that's not something that is, you know, it's not a joke. This is actually them practicing their racism. Now, I feel like right. I'm not able to get through. Yeah, those are microaggressions. The author escapes me now, the name. And the only reason I evoke authors is because black people have to deal with microaggressions all the time. You know, you get that classic thing like, you certainly are a nice person for a black person or you're not like most black people, you follow me, or you don't talk like most black people, that kind of thing. All those things are like microaggressions to Melania folk. Um, because I don't have enough information on your sister and the age of the, the, the youngster you're talking about, I will, in all honesty and sincerity, invite you to um, email me, and you give me a little bit more information, I will be glad to give you my perspective on it, because I don't want to just say something globally, because I don't know her, but based upon what you're telling me and what I hear in your voice, I hear that you recognize and you see things that she may not be able to acknowledge that she does see because she might repress the likelihood of them being there. But globally, there are any number of, of African-American people. They think that in order for them to really get a good education and be received properly, they must be signed off on and basically be in the company of Vanilla Brothers and Sisters. And, and I'll say to Gus right now, I have to give my um, vanilla friend, the psychiatrist, a shout-out because we have become somewhat estranged. I don't know if he heard something I did online, on air, whatever. But the bottom line is you and your sister, and because this is your nephew you're talking about logically, right? Are you there? I'm sorry. I muted my line. Yes, sir. Are you, You're talking about your nephew, correct? And um, correct. How, how old is this youngster you're talking about? He's one. Oh, she's a little bambino, right? He's just a little baby, right? Well, see, yeah. let me just shut. Now I have perspective. See, your sister is still nesting. Is she breastfeeding? Yes. Well, she's not really able to hear anything that you might say right now that relates to your perspectives about how the system works because the oxytoxin in her body and the little bit of vasopressin that's dancing around in her body, her hormones are still acknowledging that she's a new mother. And she's suckling that child. And whatever you say might just be like putting water on the back of a seal or an orca because she's the one that gave birth to the child, right? And I'm assuming that she gave birth to the child. It's not an adopted child, correct? Correct. So she is nesting. So she's not really able to hear what you're saying, particularly, I'm, just, I'm only going to say this just to be colloquial, which you call militant. militant. 
See, this pro-black stuff that might be popping out of your head doesn't register on her radar right now because she's too busy mothering. And if you do want to say anything to her about her child or your nephew that's preliminary, you need to start the conversation about her temperament, how she's feeling now, you know, is she able to express enough milk to sustain him? How does she feel about this? Blah, 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 blah. Is she expressing milk, putting milk in the refrigerator? It's kind of like a guy dating a, a young lady that he's really, really interested in. You have to let your sister know that you are concerned about her bond with the baby versus what you might think awaits the baby when the baby leaves her nest because she's really not able to hear that. Because in her head, that translates as a class of thoughts that you may not realize from her perspective brings some issues that make her uncomfortable, which may be stressful. And if she gets stressed while she's suckling her baby, her body's going to produce a little bit more cortisol. No, I, I appreciate that. Um, and thank you. Um, I did actually have one other question. I have been thinking about it. It is about um, the quote-unquote opioid epidemic. Um, I have been doing a lot of uh, research about the opioid epidemic um, here in Ohio. And it seems like what, um, and it, it, you can maybe just tell me if I'm maybe on the right track or not, but it seems like, you know, the opioid epidemic is because of, you know, white people over prescribing, you know, the pain medications to other whites because they felt that, you know, white people have a lower tolerance to pain. And then in turn, you know, that, that caused this, you know, this epidemic, but it also seems like they're not really trying to, um, you know, I guess combat it. They are bringing attention to it. And especially like here, they have, um, they definitely have uh, had a lot more, um, They've been building a lot more recovery centers, but in the recovery centers, they're also giving them basically a, a, a substitute for, you know, these synthetic opioids. It's a, the new thing is uh, Suboxone, but that's just basically another, um, they said that it's basically street currency that they like that a, a addict can go into these recovery centers, get the Suboxone, then take it to like a drug dealer and then get, you know, op opioids anyway. So it doesn't really seem like they're trying to help these, you know, white uh, drug addicts. So wouldn't that then go against, you know, their, their quote unquote fear of white annihilation? Are you with us, Dr. Rasayan? Hmm. Well, I'll mute my line. Hopefully he got it. Right on. Uh, it looks like Dr. Rasam might have been disconnected again. Uh, second time that we lost him uh, during the broadcast. And I'm just getting it on the record since it looks like we might have got disconnected from him twice. That Dr. Rasam, more than any other guest uh, in the entire time that I've been doing the broadcast, I have the most difficult time uh, getting in touch with him. And I mean, it's been consistent over years. Like I have to do meticulous planning to see if I can talk to him. Like I would call him and it would be literally, he would have his phone in his hand and I would text him. Say, okay. I'm going to call you Dr. Rossian. He put his phone in his hand and it wouldn't even ring. It would just go right to voicemail. We would have that happen. Like we would have to try and schedule times. 
texts, uh, calls not going through, calls being dropped, uh, just having this over and over and over again, whether he's on his cell line, home line, just really, really difficult time being able to uh, communicate with him down through the years. Anywho, uh, let's see if we have him back with us yet or if he's still now. It looks like he is still not with us, unfortunately. Uh, I'll give him a second or two, and then I might go ahead and just give him uh, a ring. If we have other folks, if you had a question you want to get into rock to Dr. Rasayan, the number is 641-715-3640, and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Hopefully we'll have him back <clears throat> Within the next few seconds, uh, we'll be here uh, minimum on Thursday for Workplace Racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, and Friday for Crazy Talk, Stupid Talk by Neil Postman, session number three. Really great tips, in my opinion, and things to be uh, observant about with regards to words and how people consistently uh, try to dupe us with language. Now, we have Dr. Rasayan back. Wowee. Uh, I had to give myself a mnemonic before so I could remember my question. Uh, not forget it with Dr. Rossion back. Uh, Red, do you want to repeat your question now that Dr. Rossion is back? I got cut off. I was telling her about the milk, but I got cut off. Uh, yes. Um, and, and I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I'm fine. I was letting you know I got cut off when I was trying to tell you about your sister bonding in the milk and things. I got cut off, but I'm back now. Right. No, I and I, I appreciate you for answering that question. And um, that definitely does help me get more perspective on that. Uh, the, the second question I had is that I have been um, uh, paying a, a lot uh, better attention to the opioid epidemic in Ohio. They say that this is um, one of the the worst states that has the um, with, with the most um, overdoses. So um, it seems like the this opioid epidemic, you know, came about because it, it seems like in the news they're saying, well, um, people who have, like, basically, I'm assuming they're speaking about white people. The reason why they're now, you know, opioid addicts is because, well, they were on some type of pain medication. But the thing that they are leaving out is that they were, you know, they're addicted to these pain medications because under, you know, the system of racism, white supremacy, white people have this, are supposed to have this lower tolerance. For pain, so it seems like these doctors are overprescribing them these pain medications, which cause them to be addicts. And then, when they can't get the pain medication, they then go on to other things. So um, it seems like. So basically, my question is, is that um, it doesn't really seem like white people are really trying, I guess, that hard to um, combat the, this problem. It seems like this is only um, furthering, you know. Uh, white genocide, which kind of seems odd if they, if some white people are actually concerned about white genocide, then it seems like they would be doing more to, to, I guess, save their own, you know, white drug addicts. What I've seen out here is that they have been building more recovery centers. And at some of these recovery centers, what they're doing is they are giving them um, suboxone, which is, I bet, which is basically supposed to help, um, you know, uh, I, I guess curb the appetite for the opioids, but what it actually turns out is that these these addicts can then take the suboxone that they're getting from these recovery centers and give it to a drug dealer and get opioids anyway, because that suboxone is basically like a substitute. I guess maybe like a a, a nicotine type of thing. Um, I'm sorry, like like a nicotine patch type of thing. So um, that that's the thing that I'm having a hard time understanding is that 
white people, it seems like they can resolve problems very quickly, but it doesn't really seem like they're trying to resolve this problem if they are that worried about white, um, uh, white uh, genetic annihilation. Okay, so you're asking me. You're, okay, so Gus, was she, was she asking? No, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. You're suggesting that because what they're doing is they're basically making available a Band-Aid to these people. Excuse me, and you're wondering if they really do care about the longevity or the health of these people because they're giving them Band-Aids at that level? Is that what you were suggesting? Yes, and then it seems like it, it, it kind of seems like it goes against, you know, this, this notion of um, their fear of white genetic annihilation. If they want to keep every single white person, then how, how come they're not necessarily doing, I guess, all that they can to save these, okay. these white addicts? I got you. Let me share something with you, okay? You do, damn, it just popped out of my head. Um, Gus, you probably know. What's the name of the compound that they actually blast up their nose to reverse the overdose? <laughs> uh, it's in the family of naloxone. Red in Ohio? Oh, she muted. Hello? Uh, NARC, I think they have yes, a lot of... Yes, it's Narcan. <laughs> okay, Narcan, right? Okay, Nar this yeah. is Narcan, right? And there were some guys that I knew about um, naloxone, because it's, it's basically an agonist. It goes there. And anyway, the bottom line is it basically will sort of like make the drug less available that's already in their body and dilute the doses so that you can bring them back to normalcy or get them breathing again on their own. And the reason why I mentioned that to you is because this is going to be um, contrary to what your thesis is suggesting, they put Narcan in a lot of um, paramedics, um, you know, you might say their, their health care bag, right? They go there, you can see, and they give people like, I don't know how many doses of this stuff to bring some people back. They do care about these folks, but they have turned it into a medical condition. And Big Farm is more willing to basically turn these people into these damn junkies so that they can sell this Narcan to these different jurisdictions. It's not that they don't care about the people. It's just that it's money to be made off of exploiting their own people. In addition to money being made exploiting their own people, you have to understand the law of reciprocity and the natural laws of Mahat. 30, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, when black folk were ODing on heroin, nobody gave a damn. You follow me? And when that was happening, it was considered criminal behavior. These were just junkies ready to rob each other. Now, I will suggest to you what pisses off a lot of people and may the great spirit escort those souls who lack knowledge that they have crossed over into a nice crossing over because nobody wants to hear anything as candid as this when they lost a loved one to the overdose of drugs. But I submit to you, as many black and brown people that lost their lives in the 70s and the 80s because of institutional racism and their efforts to try and cope. And many guys that came back from Vietnam because they could not get a job that were black and brown, and they wound up shooting heroin, or they wound up with an injury and they started using heroin, or they wound up trying to navigate institution of racism and they wound up using heroin, or they wound up not having a job and they wound up using heroin. This is nothing but the universe creating a balancing act. The universe is creating a balancing act to say to you, that heroin will kill any damn body. It will not discriminate. It will take each and every one of you off the planet. Like James Brown dropped that song probably 35 years ago called King Heroin. So it's not that they don't care. It's money to be made. And secondly, the universe has begun to balance the stage by basically saying, you too can die from using heroin. 
so in their efforts to basically make communities feel more at ease, they put Narcan on the damn um, paramedics' um, um, vehicle so when they go out to the community, they can give them a hit up their nose. And sometimes people require three to six hits before they can bring them back. And that crap is expensive. So who do you think is paying for it? Your tax dollars. So they do care about these white folks. Are you following me? Did that answer your question, Red? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And yes, uh, I appreciate that. And that that, that um, actually did help me. And I have um, looked up the Ohio um, budget and they have actually a whole program. And I have spoken on that um, on the cows about how they are taking, you know, tax dollars from everybody to help mm-hmm. these addicts. Um, but See, no, but thank you very much. You've already answered the question. Mm-hmm. Yes, you did. And thank, Money is thank more you. important. These people value their objects. You ever, let me say this to you. Are you aware that they have always said that um, Caucasian women are treated like, like objects by their men? You ever heard the expression before? They get treated like an object? Yes. So, um, again, that's the universe saying, like, white women need to understand that even your own, your, your men treat you like objects. It's money to be made. And not only is it money to be made, the universe is saying, look, about time for you guys to understand what it's like to lose somebody. And you wait till you see more literature is going to come out with, about how this is a medical condition and what it does to the brain and how the doctors somehow did not do what they were supposed to do by overly prescribing these pain meds for these women. But anyway, that's my take on it. Context of white supremacy. Appreciate that, Red. Uh, if other folks have a question they want to get in, 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Uh, press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, we certainly did not want to allow you to exit before we got your thoughts on this shooting in Las Vegas. Stephen Paddock, uh, white man, uh, he's Reportedly, I think it's 58, the, the death toll at 58 and casualties, hundreds of people uh, who were injured at this event. I still haven't seen a motive for the shooting. I've seen multiple reports where they've said that they still have found little evidence uh, as to what motivated him to open fire uh, on this group of folks who were attending this country music festival uh coincidence or no coincidences but it happened to also be the same day that oj simpson was released from a nevada prison in the same uh state uh what are your thoughts on what they've said about this shooting thus far and them having no motive uh for this person who they say had meticulously planned this shooting uh with cameras and all sorts of assault rifles and what have you uh cameras even mounted in the hotel room around so he could surveil the area before he carried out this uh act what do you what do you make of what's been reported well brother this is a dangerous conversation but all that crap smells like a lot of fish that have been left out on the wharf for a couple of days with no ice okay this smells very very fishy to me because not only what you just said points out that you had uh, an individual that allegedly probably had to release probably about 800 plus rounds because he wounded something like 540 people and actually took off the planet, 58 people. This one person, and he had these really... um, 
I forgot what they call bump stocks, bump stocks on these um, semi-automatic weapons. And they said that he had modified at least 12 of them in the hotel room. And they said he had at least 23 in there. Okay. And I think he was, um, yeah, the 32nd floor. And O.J. Simpson's jersey number happened to be 32. But I don't want to read any conspiracy theories into it. I'll just simply say to you that even though I I talked to a couple of Marines about the probability of that person creating that kind of carnage, only two told me it was plausible. Actually, I talked to four. Um, the, the two that told me it was plausible were actually the older Marines that had been to Vietnam. The younger Marines that were under the age of 35 told me that they thought that was a, a whole lot of kill for one person to do by himself. And two, they also pointed out to me that given the, um, the kind of high-velocity rounds that he was using, it was um, conceivable that he could have created that kind of carnage because some of those rounds probably went through people and hit other people, all right? But they said from where he was, about five football fields away, um, he possibly had an accomplice, right? And they pointed out that somebody needed to remember that there was a note or a receipt in the room that and some either some dishes or something left in the room that there were two people in that suite, okay? And they said there were two people in that suite. They mean they hadn't been there, but they were there over a period of time together. And I don't know if I can send it to you, but I actually got something from MSNBC News. I'm trying to give you some perspective before I concretize my answer. Um, that his um, lady friend, I won't even evoke her name, but they say she had been gone for a couple of weeks. But at the same time, they reported and in the news a few days later that she was complaining that he had been having night terrors, really uh, aggressive dreams that were waking him up in the night, stressing him out. And But if, he, if she was gone two or three weeks, how would she know about him having these weird dreams and being awakened in the wee hours of the morning screaming if she wasn't there, she had been gone for two or three weeks. But they said in the footage, I actually took pictures of it, that um, the weekend before, that he was awakened from night terror. The weekend before, and the weekend before implies that weekend before this happened, which meant that it had to have taken place seven days before. But all the things that I've got my hands on said that she had been gone for two weeks plus traveling. So what do I make of it in terms of OJ? Um, if it was not, an ops, a deep ops project to, um, this is just my opinion, totally my opinion. I don't have any formal documentation to say this. If it was not a deep ops project, um, an exercise in um, terror or a major distraction from what was going on on the planet, um, I'm thinking that this person, probably about five years from now, they'll give you the detailed documentation about the um, medication that he was taking that he had gotten from a junior psychiatrist. At this point, they've only identified anxiolytic drugs. Anxiolytic drug would be something like um, um, like a Valium, all right? Um, uh, something, something soft like that, right? Um, because you can't find out what medications he was on on the register because psychiatrists are sworn to protect your identity and confidentiality. So we don't know if he was taking any other psychotropics, you know, stronger things like... Um, something like Prozac or, I mean, something stronger, some, some kind of psychotropic or antidepressant drug, which creates what I told you before. It's called jack-in-the-box syndrome. But the symbolism is very clear 
if you deal with numerology at all, 32nd floor, O.J. Simpson's jersey was number 32, and O.J. was being released in Vegas, and O.J. was about to become the news story. So I don't think that they necessarily did that deliberately, but I do think that it was something going on in the universe to point out that um, we live in a place where Caucasian men can do the most vile heinous things to people and we will dismiss it and very gingerly refer to maybe he had a mental health problem and we can't put our hands on the motive. But the other thing that's even more mind blowing than that is his daddy was on the damn America's most wanted list from 69 up to 1977. Okay. He was a bank robber and he wound up with jobs for the IRS and the defense audit contract agency, even the damn United States, I think probably the post office and the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. And he also created a little thing where he was like robbing people playing bingo. I'm talking about his daddy. And the only reason I mention his daddy to you is because if his daddy was um, on America's Most Wanted list, why don't we hear any detailed narratives about epigenetics and the genetic predisposition of people to commit certain types of crimes when we are looking for motives rather than just say, we don't know why he did it. What's even more mind blowing. If he shot himself in the head, I like to know what the lab pathologists had to work with. If he shot himself in the head and they said they took his brain off to be analyzed. And I haven't got to tell you, if you shoot yourself in the head, unless he allegedly stuck the rifle in his mouth, you're still going to have bone fragments and all other kinds of tissue, soft tissue and tissue from the roof of his mouth and on the side of his skull to basically compromise whatever any kind of lab pathologist has been able to do with his brain. And beyond that, I told you before, why is it that you can drive on the freeway and weave from lane to lane, state trooper pull you over and give you a breathalyzer, and they take you downtown if your alcohol blood level is at a certain level because you can't drive, they take you down, and they also take all a sample of your urine. Why is it that nobody told us about what was in his urine? Why is it that nobody told us what was in his stomach? Why is it that nobody told us that what was in his blood? You're not getting any of that information. The only thing you're getting is they sent his brain off to a lab. And I will submit to you probably about a couple of years from now, they may tell you that because of the lack of um, integrity of the cortex and other brain matter, they couldn't do an appropriate test to determine if anything was gone that anything was in his brain because his brain was traumatized. So again, I told you, to me, this smells like a bunch of fish on the wharf that's been left out for days with no damn ice. Now, if you concretize a more specific question, I'll try and respond. And I'm not talking a lot about OJ other than me saying to you, it was probably something else at work in the universe to distract us from talking about what was going on with O.J. because O.J. Simpson is now the poster boy for why the judicial system will work for anybody that has a group of high-end attorneys. I apologize for rambling. Context of white supremacy. Uh, really appreciate the point about epigenetics and just, you know, folks could imagine if a black person uh, had, you know, you don't even have to say killed anybody. Let's say a black person committed a strong armed robbery 
And then they found out, oh, my goodness, his father was, you know, some criminal. Maybe he was in the Black Panther Party or whatever, some black identity extremist. And that would be, oh, man, generations of you, you know, Negras uh, have terrorized. And I mean, they have started whole campaigns of crime on things exactly like that and saying that pathologies just pathology just runs rampant in the family. And in fact, we need to sterilize them, not just political campaigns. We need to do some snipping and make sure that we do not have any more of these type of wayward Negro children. Uh, and with this guy, even in fact, if you remember last year when it was a little black child, he fell in the zoo, uh, in the pit where the gorilla was. Well, at I the remember. Zoo, and they wanted, to they wanted to charge the parents. The parents were criminalized as though they did something wrong since they had to shoot the, the gorilla hello? at the at the zoo. Oh, am I, am I Man, being Hello? I hope I'm still being heard. Whoa. Again? Could be Dr. Rutt. Really? No, they really shutting us down, aren't they? They're walking all on top of our signal. Are you still there? Let's see. Can you still hear me, Dr. Rasayan? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Just, something is Ooh. stepping on our signal. I got you. But like you just pointed out, Harambe. Yeah, they were going to charge the parents. Talking about I how just, they let the little kid get the, I was well? just, yes, sir. I was just bringing that, I was just bringing that point up. The parents in this case, I, I have not seen that same sort of attention focused on the parents. Uh, and since we can't find a moment motive, maybe the criminality was just in the genes uh, and taking that approach. And I'm not even saying that that's accurate. I'm just saying that that tends to be the case consistently uh, with the black people, even in the case where there's no crime, uh, like the zoo incident that I'm talking about. But, uh, but, but check this out, Gus, what you pointed out when you brought that up. Do you remember seeing his brother in front of his home. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Tossing this about is that it was like either asteroid or avalanche or something falling from the sky. Yes, sir. He was a great guy. He was this, he was that. You know damn well if that, <laughs> if that had been a black man, those policemen would have knocked that exactly. damn door down. Exactly. Every cell phone in the house would have been taken. The child's little damn, those little V devices that kids play with, they would have taken every electronic device out of that damn house. They would have taken the TV. All the computers would have been gone, and they would not have come to the door talking to him politely in front of the house with him doing an interview. His behind would have been on damn. He would have been sequestered from the community for three days to a week till they finished interrogating. You follow what I'm saying? Great point as well. Uh, and I think, folks, you can check that recently with the shootings that happened in Dallas and Baton Rouge last year and how those family members were treated. Now that is law enforcement, but I mean, this guy killed 58. And, and back up again. You remember Ruth Storm? Oh, Dillon? right. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Down at um, the church Carolina. in um, Charleston. And at, was it Charleston, South Carolina? Yes, sir. Did you ever see his mom and daddy on the news? Nope. Did you ever see his siblings? Oh, oh wait a minute. Black I did see his mother when she had a heart attack in court. They made a big to do about that, how this had stressed mm -hmm. her so much that she had a heart attack in court. So that would be one. Well, I don't know. Did she survive the heart attack? I believe so. Yeah, okay, cool. But the point is, if it had been a black man that was a sibling of Paddock, the brother might have had a heart attack in his house. Because the police would have broken into the damn house. It would have been right on the spot heart attack. It wouldn't have been time to think about it. It would have been like, what the hell? But put it in perspective. This guy allegedly killed all these people from that suite. Um, 32nd floor, 135. 
all by himself, and they said anywhere from 9 to 11 minutes. I think it's interesting that they picked from 9 to 11 minutes. I think that's a code because, you know, 911 and 9 to 11, and we had 9-11. And they didn't tell you, look, 9 to 11 minutes? What the hell do you mean, 9 to 11 minutes? Was it 9 minutes? Was it 11 minutes? Was it 10 minutes and 40 seconds? Did anybody record, you know, the train of gunfire raining down? Nobody had any way to record it, but they say from 9 to 11 minutes. And then he fired from both ends of the suite, allegedly by himself, and took out all these people. I'm looking forward to seeing the country music awards in the next um, several weeks to see what the folk have to say in country music because whether we got issues with Vanilla Brothers and Sisters or not, country music represents white folks' rhythm and blues. Country music represents white folk rap. Country music represents where white folk tell their stories about life experiences. And I guarantee you somebody going to say something about what happened to those people in Vegas. I also want to say the story is no longer going to be accurate. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas because Vegas is all over the damn planet right now with the greatest carnage that has occurred to white folk and a few other people in U.S. history because you know better than I, Gus, these folk have wiped out more black people than that under the rubric of the law. And I know you know about that much better than I do. But for these folk to be wiped out like that, ask yourself another question. How often did they put in the news these people, who they were, anything about them that lost their lives? And I've been having a lot of trouble getting detailed information on the people that lost their lives. I got some information, but detailed information, and this did not stay in the news long enough for me. The next thing I knew, it was gone. Are you following me? Well, I mean, hey, you got, you got Trump tweeting and NFL players not standing up for the anthem. I mean, man, who can focus mm -hmm. on one thing? Uh, I do think that is important because so many people, uh, 58, you had so many casualties uh, in this incident. I, I think I've seen a few reports here and there that gave a little bit of detail. I emailed you one that I saw that actually had a few pictures. But with so many people, uh, I don't think that report had all of the victims. And even that, it's, you know, kind of very limited. Maybe you get a photo, maybe you don't. Name, relatives, just confirmation. I mean, it's not really any detailed information about who these folks were. And again, that's a lot of people. Uh, so you'd have... I would, I would not be surprised if we find out in a couple of years that there were a couple of really, really, quote unquote, so-called much more important people in that crowd than some of the other people that lost a lot. I know this is awkward people that lost a loved one, but so-called important people. Cause you do remember when, um, what's her name? Um, Gifford, the, the lady, her husband is an astronaut. How you pronounce oh, her name? Gabrielle. Gifford. What's her name? Is it Gabrielle? Gabrielle. What's Gifford? Gabrielle. What's her last name? I thought it was Gifford. Gifford. Gabrielle. Gifford. Yeah. Gifford. Ga okay. Gabrielle Gifford. You do remember that among the people that lost their lives, it was a judge that had apparently freed or been light on some um, Latinos or some immigrant workers, um, either in Texas or somewhere, that was also killed, and that didn't come up a lot. You follow me? Now, the reason why I'm saying this to you is I'm not suggesting to you that those people were collateral damage. I'm simply suggesting to you that you have to sit down and talk to an army ranger or a seal or a beret or somebody to say to you like, damn, one guy. And of course they tell you he had these um, bump stocks on these probably AR-15 um, semi-automatic weapons. But this man had to really release about seven 
probably about 800 rounds. And if you look at the footage in the room where they said they found his body, I don't know if it was just in that one isolated place, but it would seem like me that there would have been stacks of um, shells left in there from all those rounds because they would have jumped all over the damn place if he's going from one side to the next side releasing rounds. Oh, that's some strange stuff. But my thesis still goes back with what I already told you. Why we don't get a why we didn't get a urine sample? Mm. Why we don't have a blood sample? Why nobody can tell us like we'll take nothing but a hypodermic. He shot himself. You can get anybody on the team to go in there with a hypodermic, a lower, below his belly button, take the needle, put that bad boy in that diagonal going south, and puncture his bladder and get some piss. What's in his urine? We don't know. What's in his blood? We don't know. But we do know from medical records that he was taking anxiolytic drugs for long-standing problems with anxiety. When are they going to tell us that he was taking some other kind of psychotropic drugs? Probably when, you know, maybe a year or so from now, or someone will release the information and tell us about it. Peter Brigham even talked about Oh, I was just listening. <laughs> I was just listening. But ju the judge that she referenced was Judge John Roll. He was uh, killed uh, during uh, when former Congresswoman uh, Gabrielle Giffords uh, was shot uh, back in 2011. Uh, and Gabrielle Giffords just had an S on the end. Uh, Dr. Rasan, are you still with us? Did we lose you again? Wow. Just wow. <laughs> Um, might have lost him again. I was going to get, I was going to ask him about the shooting that happened in Nashville uh, as we winding down in the program about the last 10 minutes or so, but I think we might have lost him again. Wow. Just wow. Um, <laughs> don't know. It could be, maybe it's just, hey, you know, oh, there he is. Dr. Rossell. We can hear you. Yes, sir. No, this is Thomas. Um, can you uh, hear me? Yes, sir. No, I did have another question. Uh, that's why I was just, uh, if you get them back, I had another question before you close up. Okay. Thank you for letting me know, sir. I was <laughs> thinking we had my hopes up for no reason. Uh, let's see. We, uh... Okay, I'll give him a couple minute or so before I check, uh, before he dials back in. Hopefully we can I can get my other question in about relating the Vegas shooting. Uh, or I guess I can get my comment in with Gabrielle Giffords, uh, and I just, you know, checked online just to confirm one that I did get the name correct, add the S, Gabrielle Giffords, uh, and then to also get the judge who was killed when she was shot in 2011, uh, John Roll. Um, they have, they list her shooting as an attempted assassination, which I don't have a problem with. I'm just pointing that out. They list it as an attempted assassination. State Senator... <clears throat> Reverend Pinckney in South Carolina, who was killed at the aforementioned South Carolina massacre, Mother AME Church in 2015, that is not thought of as a political assassination. Uh, they just say, you know, massacre, shooting. He was an, also an elected state official and he was actually killed. Uh, actually, he was shot. Yes. Attempted assassination. No problem. But Mr. Pinckney, Reverend Pinckney, excuse me, state senator, Reverend Pinckney, that is not thought of as a state political assassination, uh, which I think we said that within the first 24 hours of the shooting happening. And uh, I just I've, I've seen that consistently where it just doesn't get thought of in that way. That's something I would hope people think about. I, I think Dylan Roof would have seen his state senator in South Carolina. In fact, 
I would wager a lot of coins. Dylan Roof probably saw Reverend uh, State Senator Reverend Pinckney on television because he was talking to his fellow uh, state senators about the shooting of Walter Scott, which happened just a few months before then. He spoke eloquently about that. I played the sound clip on the program, but I'm pretty sure that got some attention on local media in South Carolina to have a locally elected official uh, talking about this shooting. They got national attention and had national media in South Carolina for months about this shooting. President Obama talking about it and everything. I'm pretty sure. In fact, they said in the testimony in the trial that we talked about where his mom had the heart attack, they said that uh, he had scouted the church out repeatedly, that he had been there. So if you're scouting this uh, church out months in advance, I'm very sure who he knew who Reverend uh, Pinckney was and probably had seen him on television. I don't know why this is not or I do know why. But in my view, that's one thing that we can do that will work against racism, white supremacy. Talk about the shooting, the killing of Reverend State Senator Reverend Pinckney uh, and the Emmanuel Nine. Talk about that as a political assassination by a convicted, avowed white supremacist. Uh, let's see if Dr. Rossayon is back with us. I can get my other question in. Yes. Thank you kindly for being patient with us. Tech issues aside, Dr. Rossayon. The question I was going to ask. Me back? Yes, sir. The question I was going to ask cool. was when you were talking about the uh, Vegas shooting and the attention that they got, at least at the beginning of the month before, you know, the anthem protest and everything else, that with all the attention that that got on uh gun issue, again, at least the rhetoric of, of they're going to do some sort of gun legislation. There was a shooting at a church, no less, in September, just days before this, by a black male, uh, Emmanuel Sampson, an immigrant, no less, I believe, from the continent. He performed a shooting in Nashville, Tennessee, killed a white woman. Wounded six others. He's in custody. He was wounded uh, during this shooting. He was wounded, uh, captured alive, in custody now. Uh, they just uh, he, This week, they had uh, his court proceedings, and they testified. The officer said he was seeing visions and heard voices when they took him into custody, when he had uh, his interview with enforcement officials. Uh, and he testified that uh, he said race meant nothing to him. This was after they had said that they found a note. Uh, in his possession or in his vehicle, they found a note where he was attributing the shooting to the two, 2015 Dylan Roos shooting at Emmanuel AME Church. This shooting got almost no attention. I would wager probably a substantial number of our listeners forgot about it or didn't hear about it at all. Uh, and he killed a person. Why is it that you think this this shooting got so little attention? A black person saying this was a black identity extremist, perhaps saying that this was retaliatory violence at a white church. Why did this get so little attention? Well, I have an opinion on it. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. I'm trying to, which line do you have open? My 04 line or my 266 line? I don't know. Let's see. We are. Does it show you? Let's see. Because I had so, to use both phones. Oh, okay. To get we have you on the 06 line. Okay. All right, fine. All right, cool. So the bottom line is this, my brother. This is just clearly an opinion. I don't have any documentation. Are we, are we good? Yes, sir.
Gus, hello? Now you are on the 5261 line. Okay, you know what? That's funny, man. Some, some crazy stuff has happened. But check this out. Anyway, the bottom line is I don't really know, and I would be inclined to think that this is just a thought based upon some fundamental things that I've seen happen. It would be consistent with maybe that story wasn't going to fly to kind of inflame the kind of sentiments that they want to have inflamed, number one. And number two, it's a possibility, given what you just shared earlier, that this person was claiming that he was hallucinating, doing X, Y, Z, and so forth and so on. So if somebody decided they wanted to evaluate this person in background, it would be a lot more information coming out. And if a lot more information came out about this person, then the same questions would be asked about this person that would be raised about the person that allegedly killed himself. It's like this person has a mental health history, so why is it that we know all the details about this person, and we don't know anything about what this other person was doing, but they can pull up the records of who this person was talking to. With mental, you know, in other words, he's alive, so they can say he was talking to this person, he's talking to that person. And you do know that they already know that Paddock had been seeing a psychiatrist as late as June to get his prescriptions. You do know that, right? That was well documented. You wear that, right? That is a new bit of Hello? information. Yes, I can hear you. I can hear you. No, 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 no. He he was on some what they call anxiolytic drugs. And the, the light, gentle one that I can say now to you is um, Valium. But there were a couple more. And you can go to Dr. Peter Briggan's website, and Peter Briggan might tell you a little bit more if he's gotten any more information. And Peter Briggan is a Harvard-graduated psychiatrist that does any number of narratives and programs and written books about the impact of psychotropic drugs and anxiolytic drugs on human behavior. Um, I don't think this story probably received any coverage because I don't think it was in their best interest to amplify that theme around this person creating that, for lack of a better term, that um, number of that person to expire and the kind of injuries that were sustained by that person. And also that person, according to the way they described him, was just obviously overtly kind of crazy. And that might give people the impression that you know all this about this person because you produced this documentation. So who was this person seeing? And you know journalists, man. They're like damn um, flies out in the bush trying to find dung, right? So they'll zoom in and say, well, why don't we know this about that person? History of psychiatric intervention. Where do we go to get that? I think it would have given people an impetus or given them some fuel to ask the questions that they wanted asked about what happened in Vegas. Because what happened in Vegas, brother, is off the chart. You follow me? And not only that, five football fields away to take out that many people. That long, and none of those policemen on the ground could actually see any little bursts coming from, keep in mind, nine to 11 minutes. Nobody noticed at the top up there. They said it was coming from Mandalay Bay. And they didn't tell us whether or not he had anything on his weapon to keep you from having little like little puffs of smoke, a little blast of fire coming from that. And to shoot that many rounds from a damn gun, shit, that shit would have to heat up, man. Shit, machine guns don't shoot like that. Many guns shot like that on planes in Vietnam, right? That's a lot of rounds. So I don't know why they didn't disclose that, other than they didn't want to draw attention to it and bring to other folks' attention. And more importantly, when you really get down to it, the loss of life of those people with that person was not the kind of story that I think that they wanted to fan 
And more importantly, I think that, I don't know how to say it, I'll just be candid about it. Somebody's hiding something. And I don't know what they're hiding. But I just ask the basic questions. And if I go to work over the next few days and come back home and find out my computers don't work and, I, and, and my phone's not working well or some weird shit happened on my website, then I'll know that I didn't step on somebody's toes, but I got reminded not to discuss certain things, which still don't mean shit to me. Okay? Thomas in New York. If you got a, a, if you got a concrete question that we can kind of like refocus on because in a little while it's going to be 11. And how many times are we disconnected? Three or four times? Man, I have lost count. It's been so many times. I, I was telling the listeners that it's you. I have more tech issues with you uh, and trying to call or text or whatever it is. I have more problems trying to get in touch with you than uh, anybody else. Uh, they <laughs> really make it cumbersome. Uh, Thomas in New York. Well, here's my thesis. You know, I don't get high. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't hang around people that smoke and get high and drink. And I'm damn certainly not suicidal. All right. <laughs> he has reminded us of that repeatedly. Should anything happen to him, he has reminded us of that repeatedly. Has zest for life. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you want to get your question in? Um, yes, I did. Um, uh, I, I would love for you first to, um, if, well, you know, whenever you get a chance before you leave, can you give your email again? Because I want to send you a link, and um, if you get a chance to watch it, and I would like to get your response to that. Um, my question I'm shooting to Gus, and Gus, you shoot it to me, okay? Perfect, perfect. You kind send of it to Gus, and Gus will send it to me. Um, my question was, and this is for both you and Gus, I saw a, um, been seeing a black man, I live in Harlem, and I've been seeing this black brother, he has dreadlocks, and um, dresses pretty, you know, what, what I would say, conscious, you know, um, doesn't seem like he did some material things, things of that nature. Um, he is, but he's walking with a little Asian baby, and it's obvious, straight Manchurian, not a blazing, you know, it's a little Chinese baby or Korean. And, um, I, you know, didn't think not another, but maybe, you know, messing with a Korean girl. That was, when I say a baby, it's about, baby's about probably 18 months, two years old. And, um, then I saw him the other day with an Asian baby and um, a white woman holding hands. So I said to myself, man, um, you know, that can't be his wife. So, um, you know, me and the guy usually say hi to each other. So, I, you know, I asked some, some questions, you know. So he says, oh, yeah, my wife. And, you know, so I said, your wife is the white lady? So he says, yeah. So I said, okay. And I, I just kind of left it at that. But what would be the psychology behind a black person um, not only marry a white woman, I mean, but to adopt a child that's Asian, like, you, we're, 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 why wouldn't y'all go get a little light-skinned black baby or something and try to pass it off? Like, it just doesn't seem logical to me, and I just want to know your thoughts on that, both of you, because it, it's very odd. I can see the white woman doing it, but the black dude is just, like, strange. Because you want to do that first? Uh, my response is... I don't know. It is strange. <laughs> my response is this, my brother. Locking don't make you conscious, number one. Number two, locking don't make you conscious, all right? Because you said he seems to be conscious and blah, 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 blah. And the third thing I want to say, I'm going to say four things. Locking don't make you conscious 
And what makes you think that he made the decisions about who was going to adopt whom? If you see a brother with locks and he's wrapped up with a vanilla sister and an Asian sister, and chakras don't really discriminate, believe it or not. Your chakras in your body allow you to have restlessness for people. Now, he could be a damn CIA. I don't really know, but the point is this. When I said locking don't make you conscious, and there are a lot of brothers, man, and they might look like they in charge, but behind closed doors, the person that they would make the decisions. You understand what I'm saying? So he may not have made the decision about who they were going to adopt or whatever. He may not even been telling you the truth. Because human relationships, uh, they go from crazy as hell to I don't understand why to they're just human relationships. And you never know what humans will do behind closed doors. And you never know what humans will do when their emotions get involved. And short of me giving him a battery of tests and having a detailed diagnostic interview, I don't really know. But I'll warn you about this. Wherever you go, and you say you live in Harlem, there was a time when Harlem meant Harlem. But I don't know if Soho or gentrification has taken over Harlem and the brownstones are owned by 80% vanilla people or Asian here and there. I don't really know. Because I haven't been to Harlem in the past six years. But what you see is not always what you're looking at. Because <laughs> what you see, what you're looking at, can be something entirely different. And if you don't know what that means, like I said, just because you're locking don't mean you're conscious. Are you wow. feeling me? Wow. Well, Absolutely, bro. Absolutely. And I, I, I know that doesn't mean you're conscious. It just, it just like, shocked me when I saw him with the, the I expect, you know, I just expected to see him with his Asian girlfriend and that's her daughter or something. So when I saw him with the white woman, it just was like, man, that is, that's some deep psychological um, manipulation she did to him. And I, I'm but see, you ain't, you, ain't, you ain't even got to use your brain trying to figure it out. I just told you the chakras don't discriminate. Mm. You follow me? Like right now, don't, don't you know what um, Gus would tell you? Isn't Fenty still um, dating Steve Jobs, um, Steve Jobs' lady? I'm not sure on the that mayor, one. The, the former mayor of Washington D.C. He's still chasing that that lady <laughs> slash that money that goes with that lady. I'm all the way in the other Washington, so I could not. Uh, <laughs> I can't say I'm up. The only thing on I'm there, trying to but... say is when it comes to emotions and relationships, yes, you don't know what humans would do. Got all it. you have to do is look at that old stupid movie called. Um, I'm going to get you sucker. And that brother, I forgot his name. He played in, um, the black dude. I forgot his name, but his, his wife is, is, a, is a white woman. They got two little kids running around and that's, I'm going to get you sucker. Wow. And he talked about the people in the movement got government jobs. What's his name? Clarence Williams, something like that. I'm not, I'm not, I was just saying, wow, because uh, I cannot believe that that film got referenced in the program. And then. I, that's the second time within, I think, three months that that film got brought up randomly for some strange reason. I have no idea how it came Yeah, but up. I'm bringing it up because that brother is talking about this brother, and I'm talking about this guy that was right. in the movement, and he got him a little vanilla woman running around with these little children. It's been very common. It's That is not unusual at all. There's been a lot of that. that exactly. And I'm saying yeah. to you, you know what I'm saying? You're, matter of fact, you opened up the show with Nilly Fuller talking about 
Um, it's not that brother's fault that he wants a white woman and he thinks this woman is more attractive or blah, blah, blah. You opened up the show and Nelly Fuller talking about that. I sure did. Great. What did I say before? Great memory, Dr. Niana Rasayon. Eyesofmaat.com. Eyesofmaat.com. We always, it is always a treat having you on the program to get uh, just your insight on on things that are happening and even suggestions, uh, direct things that people can be doing to try to solve some of our problems, address any of our issues. Uh, any final thoughts you want to get in before we let you enjoy the rest of your Tuesday evening? I want to say this. <clears throat> if I didn't love my people so much, there's nowhere in the world I would have run three stoplights coming home to get here to park in front of my computer. <laughs> and I also wanted to say this to you, because remember I told you I might not get here until probably about 20, 30 hours, and I actually got here on time. I said to you that um, when this just asked the question about what was going on with the drugs, the universe has consciousness, and all these things that a lot of black people think that vanilla brothers and sisters are Caucasian and the system of race and white supremacy is doing to us, I'll tell you, I'll tell you again, the time is up. They cannot run to Mars, they cannot run to Venus, and they damn so can't live on the moon. The universe has decided to intervene, and all the crap that they used to do to us Malcolm said it and got him in a whole bunch of trouble. Chickens come home to roost. It comes back. That's the law of reciprocity. My pleasure, my honor to share my two cents worth with you. And if I offended anybody, you have my profound apologies. But if I did offend you, inherit in my apology, as I just call it the way I intuitively see it. One love. Peace. Eyesofmaat.com, eyesofmaat.com. You can see the blog, books, other insight from Dr. Niana Rasayan. Thank you again. Always a pleasure to have you on the broadcast. We will look forward to having you back soon. Uh, And following up, I'm going to try and do some more research on the paddock situation and just to see what comes out over the next two, three months to see what additional information, victims, uh, the shooting, just, you know, what comes out uh, to have you back on to follow up on that as well as, you know, what transpires for the rest of the year. Uh, We will be here on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Workplace racism. Uh, If you have questions, comments, guest suggestion, uh, if you have a problem accessing anything in the archives, dropping an email until justice at gmail.com. Thanks for all the folks listening in, dialing in. Thanks for everyone being patient, including Dr. Rossian with all the tech issues and what have you been. I think he had to dial us back in like 50 times, but thanks for everyone. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. I will again encourage sobriety would be best. Sounds like Dr. Rossian would co-sign on that one. I think we should do everything we can to preserve our brain computers, as Dr. Welsing would say, uh, so that we can crank out solutions to the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. Uh, And certainly if you're going to be out and about in a vehicle, especially if you plan on running red lights, make sure you are sober and buckled up. Uh, Say that every time, whether you're a driver or passenger, buckle up. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. You never know when it'll be Daniel Holtzclaw pulling you over. Uh, Let's make sure we can minimize that if we can at all. And then I don't think being intoxicated is going to make that situation work out in your favor. Sobriety would be best. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people 
victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.